I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Ned J.D. Philippus. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 107. I am your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... Would you believe the Kingpin? No. Or is Donovan. And this is Jai. And this is Donovan's better half, Stella. And we are bringing you the latest comic news and comic book reviews from the weeks of December 16th through January 5th. Three weeks because, um, if you did not know or did not realize, DC Comics did not release their normal set of books uh, the day after Christmas. So because of that, um, we delayed the comic cast for one week to catch up so we would keep on schedule with the normal set of books. Uh, January does, in fact, have five Wednesdays, but because of the no comics after Christmas, they will just basically catch up this uh, with the fifth week in January. There are some annuals that are supposed to be coming out, I believe. Batman and Robin annual is the only one we'll be focusing on here on the podcast, but um, normally they use that fifth week for annuals, but it looks like um, they planned it to coincide with the non- comics being released on uh, the day after Christmas. So, um, even though there has there is three weeks, we don't have a ton of news to go over, but we do have a total of eight different books to cover, including Red Hood and Teen Titans, which we have cut from our past programming, but, uh, well, Red Hood we cut from our past programming, but we've brought back because they are dealing specifically with Death of the Family, so we will discuss those books So, uh, without further ado, let's get into comic news. The very first thing we're going to talk about is, in fact, Gail Simone returning to Batgirl. Uh, We talked about this uh, briefly on the last episode way back in December about Gail Simone uh, being fired from Batgirl. And the interesting thing is, as I guess, as the world works... Um, because Gail Simone has a large fan base and the fan base that she does have is so extremely vocal, they were able to convince the head honchos up at DC to give Gail Simone her job back. I'm going to leave it at that for now and <laughs> hand it over to Stella so she can tell you more about it. You know, obviously, Gail Simone loves her Twitter, and we found out that she was fired on Twitter, so of course we're going to find out that she's rehired on Twitter. And so basically, um, you know, she started off, I think, with this sort of nonchalant twit tweet, and then all of a sudden it came out, you know, I'm back on Batgirl. So obviously people were probably writing in left and right to DC Comics, so here's my issue with this. I love that, you know, writers, and especially a female writer, has such a great fan base, and they'll go to bat for them, and that DC's listening. My only issue is, 
why are they listening to fans about that, but not about like other things? Like, why isn't Cass Kane fan? Why aren't they being listened to? Why aren't Stephanie Brown fans being listened to? And I guess that has nothing to do with Gil Simone being back on the book. But I, I think the point is is a pretty strong one that I think the fans are listening to sometimes, but not other times. I guess now we'll finally see what she has in store for Barbara, what the secret origins are of her walking legs and, and what she did in those months in the wheelchair. So we'll actually get to see that happen. Huh. Am I re- <laughs> Hey, she had to plot it out, so we heard. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I there was like a glimmer of hope that we could get um, kind of a, a new person on there breathe some life back into Barbara Gordon and have a good book and that that was slowly tugged out from us. So now we're just sort of back, back to the norm and I guess we can only, we'll just be trudging along unless something changes and maybe it was a, it was a good swift kick in the pants and maybe she'll get her act together somehow, but I don't know. I'm just sort of frustrated that, you know, they listen to fan outcry with one thing but not other stuff that I think really matters. I'm frustrated that she's back. <laughs> if there was ever a proof that God hated me. <laughs> no. But, like, you know, we, we talked when we, when we discussed her uh, firing the email. That the way they did it was wrong. So, and I guess we're talking about a person's job and their livelihood. So, on that level, it is good that she's brought back. I mean, it's, that's a positive thing. We don't want to be hateful about a positive thing that, you know, her fan support convinced uh, her... Uh, employers to rehire her. That's actually very nice. Um, that also actually kind of lends credence to the mystery behind her firing, which we never found out about. And now that she's hired again, I would be very interested to know what the whole story is. But I was, that might make DC out to be a, a bunch of rats. So um, maybe until she is fired or she leaves for reals, then we'll find that out. Um, I really don't like this. I don't want her on Batgirl. I truly don't. But you know, she has a job, you know, and the fan support her, that, that's a good thing. And, you know, God willing, Batgirl turns out to be a good book now. Maybe once this, this, uh, Joker story is over with, then Batgirl will stop being such a milksop and, uh, in the minds at least, and just being a, a cool book. Or maybe, you know, she'll lighten up and not have, you know, these creepy serial killers cloud the book all the time. Bottom line, she was done wrong. A right was, a wrong was righted, at least in terms of her employment. God, I wish she was off Batgirl. But, hey, what do I know? Here's the thing. We know for a fact that she will be off Batgirl for at least two issues because Ray Fox, who was supposed to be filling in in the meantime for Gail Simone for, I believe it was issues 17 and 18... Um, those, he's still tweeting on Twitter that he is still writing those books and he is already turned in the scripts for, I believe, at least one of them, if not both of them. Um, and Ray Fox is a friend of Scott Snyder's and for the most part, Ray Fox hasn't really been, he hasn't like taken any heat for, you know, filling in on Batgirl because of this whole situation with Gail Simone, which is good because it's good to see that despite the fact that there's, that Gail Simone has such a large fan base that they're not, you know, basically getting pissed at somebody who's, you know, filling in for her or whatever. Now, the question is, regardless of whether or not um, Gail Simone is coming back, the question is, why exactly 
did it happen so suddenly? He's filling in for issues 17 and 18. 17 was already solicited as Gail Simone. And we only found out that 18 was going to be done by Ray Fox after a day after it was announced that Gail Simone was fired. So the question is, why did it happen so abruptly? And what did she do in 17 to piss her editor off? That they that they fired her, and then you know, regardless of the fact that she's coming back, what did she do in seventeen to make the editor fire her, and to bring somebody in to to do an issue that, in turn, was going to be you know be being worked on later than usual because it was already solicited. Well, you know, that's interesting because it's under the assumption that she wrote something that that would cause her to be fired. I mean. I think that uh, in my experience with, you know, uh, writers and the way comic books and storytelling generally go, if a writer writes something that the editors don't like, they're not going to wait until the story is finished or the, before the book comes out to have it changed or to have it, you know, or to take care of it. I mean, that's not – it's not like, like for instance, there was something in, in the, uh, an already published book the editors didn't like and they've gone back on it or whatever. So I'm not so sure that it's – what she wrote in the book. I mean, that would be cool. Actually, I actually really like that for gossip purposes, which makes it sound sleazy, which I am. But like, I think that, um, it, I don't know. I really don't know. Cause I mean, people like her. I don't think Batgirl is the top. I mean, I don't care what the sales figures say. Um, for at least the, the sales that I've read, Batgirl's not a top seller. It's not a horrible seller, but it's not like the best seller they have. It's not as good as Aquaman. <laughs> and, um, I, I just think that like Gail Simone's popularity kind of keeps her at Batgirl specifically. I don't think, and, I, 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 and this might be really presumptuous for me to say, but I think a lot of people buy it based on her name alone. I don't think that uh, Gail Simone's intrinsic writing quality or whatever she does either sets DC off or keeps her there. I think she's a very popular, I think her name kind of transcends DC in and of itself as a female author, regardless of what that might uh, uh, infer or that, what that might actually mean. But... I think whatever got her off the book in the first place, I might be, it might be because of the way she, I'm thinking it's more of the way she thought, uh, she would take, like to take the book or how she was handling the new DC regime more than anything else. But that's also my opinion on it. I'm angry. <laughs> uh, I imagine, I know she's got huge fan support. Um, I get what Stella was saying about why would DC listen to this and not other things. I imagine it's a lot easier to hire back a writer than to try and work in the character so I'll forgive them for that I imagine the main reason she's back is because a lot of her fans will be going oh well you know she's a significant female writer and you're firing her that's so sexist or whatever I imagine it's got a lot to do with that and I remember at uh, San Diego Comic Con I think it was a few years ago back when they used to release the podcasts uh, of the recorded panels and there was a woman there who kept on every single Batman and DC. Kyrax. She would uh, keep bringing up, oh, how come you haven't got any female writers? And I think DC said, basically, you know, we're open to female writers, but if they're not any good, then we're not going to hire them just like we wouldn't hire any male writers. I don't think there's any sexism in that. I think that they want the best writers for the job, and if she did something to piss them off then why shouldn't she be fired for it? And then why should she get her job back just because of her sex? If anything, that's... Wouldn't you agree that's more sexist? Just hiring her because of her? It's like including minorities just for the sake of including minorities to appear, not as if you're excluding them when it, when you kind of take notice of that. 
in a way, it's kind of drawing more attention to it. I feel it's got a lot to do with that. And I would agree. That th- I mean, the thing is, of course, coming from a male's mouth, it's going to come across as sexist. But the reality is, if you're not writing, if you're not, if you're not doing your job, regardless of what your job is, if you're not doing your job, then you don't have a job. That's just the way it goes. If you're a male, then and you're not doing your job, you should get kicked off the book. If you're a female and you're not doing your job, you should get kicked off the book. This is it's not it has nothing to do with sexism in my opinion, because the reality is there's been other writers who have been kicked off the books. Tony Daniel may say that he left on his own terms so that he could go back to doing only writing, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't oh here, Tony, here's another contract, sign it away so you can do detective comics for another two years even though the sales are starting to slump. Like, it's it's not like that. Gail Simone's not the first writer within these this batch of New 52 writers who has been taken off a book. Liefeld. So, I mean, like, it's that's just that's just the, the nature of the beast. The, the, the reality is, if you're not doing what DC wants you to do, or you're not doing it to the standards that they want you to do them, you don't have a job. The reality is it's turned into this giant thing about, oh, well, I mean, and I'm not saying it's turned into a giant thing about, oh, she's a female writer and it's it's so horrible that they got rid of a female writer. I'm not saying that because I really haven't seen that anywhere. But then again, I guess in some, in some regards I live under a rock when it comes to some of these things because I don't necessarily see all of the, the back alley stuff that happens on the Internet. But at the same time, it's just to say that, we need to give her a job back because she's a female writer is stupid. It's complete stupidness. Because, yes, I agree. There's there's not a lot of female writers that are working at DC right now. And, you know, that's a shame. But at the same point is the, the point of what DC does is they're a business who wants to make money. And they want to put out the best product possible. If that means the best product possible is with the set of writers they have right now, then that's what that means. If there's female writers out there who are putting out really good projects, DC will probably take notice and bring them on board if they have a project that they can, that they have them in mind for, mind for. So, I mean, like, I don't, I don't want this to turn into, oh, well, she, she, uh, she's a female writer and to get rid of a female writer, that's so horrible because if she's not doing her job, she's not doing her job, regardless of what she has in her pants. Okay. That's pleasant. Well, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll like to say, I'll like to say that, no, it wasn't. I'll like to say this at least. And, um, Speaking as somebody who very much advocates femininity in all areas, um, really, I I don't. I, and I, I've, I've stressed before because I don't have a personal thing against Gail Simone uh, or anything. You know, I, I, she's she's a writer, or whatever. She she and I know she always tries her best, and you know, or at least I would imagine so. I think that like her kind of her, the kind of cult of personality around her is really starting to get to me. And I'm not saying it's because they got her her job back, but at kind of a related note, to me, every time I hear Gail Simone, it's just sort of, oh, Gail Simone. It's sort of like when you hear Scott Snyder, you think of Scott Snyder and his Batman work, or his American Vampire work, or his Swamp Thing work, or, you know, stuff that he does. When you think of Grant, or Grant Morrison, you think of, you know, Batman Inc., or Justice League, or Batman, or uh, um, Animal Man. I feel that with Gail Simone, 
at least, if it, and the way I'm understanding, and if anybody strongly disagrees with me, please write in because I would I would like to actually be enlightened on this. I think with Gail Simone, it's very much a cult of personality as opposed to her actual work output, at least as of late. I know I heard a lot about her when she was on Birds of Prey initially. And honestly, I think Secret Six was a popular book. And I, and I read Secret Six, and I didn't love it. I didn't like the last issue, but I understand why people liked it. I think currently with Batgirl, I really do think that like her name sells that title. I know how douchey that sounds, but I think it really is more of that because people aren't talking about Batgirl really. They're not talking about you know what she does to Batgirl what, and she does innovating with Batgirl. They're, it's more of lines with, oh, scale Simone, so it must be good, or oh, scale Simone, so you can't fire her. And don't get me wrong, the way she was done was horrible. And for pers- on a personal level, I'm glad she's hired again. But I feel as though the the manner in which she was hired when hired back may not have been ideal if you want to compare it to other per- other people's situations. So just take that for what that it is. I'd also be worried that after being handled the way she has, assuming she does, you know, write the best story she can, is she really going to put that much effort into it? Is she going to come back thinking, oh yeah, I want to make this company money and continue writing this the best I can, or is she going to slack on it, or is she really does love the character as much as she claims to? I assume she will continue writing it to the best of her ability, but there is a chance that she's going to lose some passion for it now. Well, also, and I, like, I, ha- that. I, I have to wonder, though, how much, I mean, how can her editor stay her editor if he was the one who fired her? Was he, well, Did he fire her, or did he just say that she's no longer on the book? I mean, did he fire her, or did he just deliver the message? I mean, I don't know. I don't know exactly, because the problem is, it's basically, she said she received an email from her editor saying she was off the book. She, it didn't say she was fired, it didn't say anything except for her editor sent her an email saying that she was off the background. That's all I ever saw. The reality is, if it was her editor who did that, how in the world could her editor stay her editor? Because if he, if her editor was the same editor, he, she's essentially bulletproof. And it's a, I mean, it'd be a better relationship. Yeah, it would be horrible. I mean, basically, she'd be sitting there saying, well, what are you going to do? You're going to tell me I'm fired again? Well, I'll just get <laughs> it reversed again. And at the same time, like, how, how, I mean, like, it's a bad situation. I mean, I mean, who knows? Maybe the maybe the editor is going to change. Her editor, at, I mean, the the editor that we assume it was was Brian Cunningham because um, at the time all the articles were talking about he was the editor on the book, um, and he would have been the one who fired her. So I mean, I just have to wonder what kind of situation there is going on with that. But I mean, like the thing is. I just don't, I don't, to me, it just seems like, okay, so now she's back, so maybe she's going to go even more over the top with some of the stuff that she is maybe known for, but is not necessarily meant for a book like Batgirl. I mean, there's other books out there, okay, I shouldn't say there's other books, because quite honestly, um, there's nothing comparable to what she was doing in Secret Six, which a lot of what she did in Secret Six is one of, is a lot of the stuff that people really enjoy. Like, I don't hear a lot of people talking about the stuff that she did on Birds of Prey. I hear a lot of people talking about the stuff that she did in Secret Six. Mm-hmm. There's not really anything comparable to what Secret Six was out now. So, I mean, it's not something that she's going to be able to be like, oh, well, okay, I don't have to do background, but do, let me do this instead. So, I mean, and I don't see them doing a Secret Six book either. The thing is, regardless of whether or not it was good, the sales is what is what talks when it comes to this stuff. See, Secret Six did not have, you know, crazy amazing sales. It just didn't. And the thing is, like, Batgirl is a character who's going to have decent sales. Um, Gail Simone does give those sales a boost. But, 
like I said before, when we talked about this, I, this was a while back, but we compared the sales of Batgirl, uh, pre New 52 to the sales of New 52 Batgirl. And the reality is, uh, pre, uh, Stephanie Brown Batgirl didn't have, you know, great, amazing sales, but it wasn't that low compared to what they're, what, what they're claiming, you know, is Batgirl's being so great now is. The thing is, Gail Simone is, a more well-known comic writer compared to Brian K. Miller. Mm-hmm. And obviously Barbara Gordon is more mainstream than Stephanie Brown is as well. Plus, we also know that the New 52 boosted up comic sales across the board for all of the books. So, I mean, the reality is... Which have all dropped down since then? Well, some of them have. So, uh, there's a good chunk Most of them, them have. that have. Yeah. But there are some that still, I feel as if, you know, certain creators were changed, like... So like, for example, Swamp Thing. Scott Snyder's going to come off Swamp Thing, and I'm sure that book's going to take a giant drop. Oh. Not that it's a bad series, but I just, Scott Snyder has, in my opinion, probably been the name that's been carrying that book. Yeah. So, it's just what happens. And as much as, and, and, and Gail Simone's not going to stand back at all forever. There's, she's just not. Eventually, she's going to leave back at all. Especially after reading all of the stuff that she's been posting, or she posted up, between the time she announced she got fired and the time that uh, she got rehired about how her email box and her Twitter file or Twitter messages and her text messages, everything was blowing up with all kinds of offers for all kinds of projects. And she was so happy because she felt as if there was all these projects that she would have never been able to work on that now she would have the chance to work on. And she was like going on and on about how Did she, want to do so a great own that she had all, as well, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I can't see her wanting to stay on Batgirl forever if all these other projects that she really would like to do open up to her or are open up to her now that that whole situation happened. So, I mean, mark my words, I'm going to give it January of 2014. Gail Simone won't be on Batgirl if it even lasts that long. What number did you say? 2014. Oh, just 2014. Yeah, just one thing before we sort of move. I I totally agree that the name carries weight. Um, I I think that, you know, people are going to try things when when it says, you know, Scott Snyder on there. You know, if it just started off with Talon, what's his Court of Owls business? I don't know, but Scott Snyder's on there. I think we would all, you know, take a chance and read it. Uh, But I just want to address something Joe said about sort of the passion. I, I hope that she has the passion, I believe he was saying, but, you know, it may have dwindled a little bit from being pi- fired. I don't think she had the passion at all starting this book off. I totally believe that she loves the character, but I think she loved her more as Oracle. And you can sort of say that I love Barbara Gordon, but I, I think she just loved her that one part, and so she couldn't really carry that over, and she sort of always was half-heartedly writing it. And Donovan's always brought up the point at the the panels. It just seemed like, I mean, either she was really, really tired, but she was just, like, disinterested and not excited about anything. And if I were writing a comic, if I had that sort of job, if I was writing my favorite character, I would be, like, bouncing off the walls and really excited about everything. Like, Scott Snyder was super excited talking about the Joker and what he had planned, and then you go to Gail Simone. Well, she's going to be fighting this talent. It was it was just really <laughs> depressing. And so I don't think this is going to revitalize any of the passion. At least she has some things already written down, so it'll have whatever... <laughs> 
type of writing she had before, but I, I agree. I, I think she's not going to last long. I, I hope that she leaves of her own volition rather than being kicked off, and I think that she needs to recognize when it's time to leave. I hope that she doesn't ride it out as for as long as possible and drags it down, and then well, maybe it's time to leave. I hope she leaves at a good point. I have like one final thing to say, and that's just going to reiterate, because I'm sure... We sound like a bunch of hateful people right now. It's not so much Gail Simone as it is the quality of work, you know? It's not like, you know, if we see a Gail Simone on the street, we're going to do anything to her. It's just, like what, what uh, Stella was just saying, her quality of work, at least, uh, especially for a while on this podcast, even going back to her second run on, ba- on Birds of Prey, in our opinion, it's not been up to snuff. And Batgirl especially has been particularly egregious that... It either either it shapes up or, you know, she might as well leave the book. That's essentially what we're saying. If anybody takes away from this that we want to see Gail Simone out of a job, it's not so much that it is. The circumstances behind uh, her firing, her rehiring, and the quality of uh, the background title. All right, so with that, let's let's wrap that conversation up and get into some other news. So uh, there's a couple interviews. We're not going to talk about the interviews. You can check the website. There was an interview with uh, Greg Hurwitz and Ethan Van Skyver talking about Mad Hatter, which is upcoming in... The next issue of Batman the Dark Knight. Um, uh, there's a rumor currently floating around the internet, uh, started by Bleeding Cool, that starting with issue number 18, Scott Lobdell will no longer be writing Red Hood and the Outlaws, and James Tinian could possibly be going into writing that book by himself. Um, Tinian is currently writing Talon. Um, and has written some of the backups and some of the Scott Snyder books over the past year. But uh, the thing is, Tinian is probably not going to be able to carry Red Hood and the Outlaws. Um, not that Scott Lobdell is carrying the book either, but I doubt that he's going to be able to carry that book to keep the sales good, or to keep the sales to the point where it's not going to get into a cancellation uh, range. But at the same point... Um, I don't know. It just seems like, as of right now, there's something's happening at DC, and it probably has to do with um, a good set of cancellations and a good set of new wave, a new wave of comics, including my long rumored Red Robin series. Is it a changing of the guard? Um, I I don't. It, it seems really unstable. Is my I mean, just if you were to pick up random snippets of news that pop in through the interwebs just here and there, I mean, Rob Liefeld's Twitter blow up and then sort of the the, the fight that he had, well, fight with quotations with Scott Snyder and then uh, uh, Perez. I mean, all of these things going on, it just seems like an unstable environment and something is going on in the inside. And I think that stuff needs to happen from the top, like, the top administration, basically, before the the bottom people, which is, I guess would be the comic writers, are going to have someplace stable to work. And it's kind of sad. I mean, I'm not a fan of um, Lobdell, but <laughs> uh, I mean, it's great. Be? Well, it's great that James Tinian's getting his foot in the door, but of course, it's all about who you know these days, since um, he was a student of Scott Snyder. But Gee, to to hear that Bob Dell is off that, and but he's on a big book right now, Superman. But this is just a rumor, of course. But I, I feel like we hear about editors being switched every day. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but it, it's just an unstable environment. That's basically my comment. I think it all just goes back to Dan Dio being the man in charge, 
And I think Dan DiDio, he is, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a business, so they have to be concerned about sales. But I think ultimately, DiDio is probably solely creating a specific line of editors that figure out a way to convince the writers to do exactly what Dan DiDio wants. And that's what it comes across as. Because, I mean, we've heard stories for years about how Dan DiDio wants to do this, Dan DiDio wants to do that. And for whatever reason, some of that stuff didn't happen. But now it seems as if we're not hearing any stories about, oh, well, Dan wanted to do this, but we didn't do that. It's just we're hearing stories about how the writers are leaving because they have problems with their editors and, you know, in general, their stories are getting changed the last second and things like that. So I just have to wonder if Dio is just creating a, you know, line of editors to do exactly what he, to do his bidding, essentially, and then in turn, the writers are getting pissed about it and taking off. Um, so, yeah, that's my thoughts on that for now. All right, so with that, that is all of our news that we're going to discuss. A lengthy discussion about Gail Simone, but I don't know how we could have done that any other way. Yeah. So with that, let's get into our books. And the very first book we're going to cover is Catwoman number 15. I am Catwoman. Yeah. The Black Diamond Probability. Catwoman number 15 in the zone. Writer and the city artist Rafa Sandoval. Let's do my best. This issue begins with Selena Kyle driving up on a motorcycle to her pallet fence, Gwen. Uh, they are right outside of a hotel. They're there to basically rob a bunch of stupid kids that are rich because they're too busy partying. Uh, they know this because Gwen has some sort of fancy app on her phone to let her know of such schoolyard parties. And um, they're about to steal something valuable when security shows up with guns. Selena offers them something that they're not going to get uh, because while they're distracted, she hits them in the face with a bowl of rope and some uh, shurikens. They jump out of the window and escape, not, but not before catching the glance of Detective Alvarez, whom Selena wonders, does he know my identity? Later on that night at the Gotham Family Hospital, she gives a little gift to her friend Milo, who we met, last saw in the, uh, the two-part Joker story during the death of the family's crossover. And then we hop over to the hap- uh, some hotel, who cares what it's not called, <laughs> uh, where uh, we see Mr. Trip Winter, who is uh, Selena's other contact man, and um, he, she gives him the diamond ring that she stole, which turns out to be some sort of... Uh, if anybody's uh, consistently watched the show Batman Beyond, the character Ink, it's a lot like that. Oh, a sort of yeah. oozy, gooey, sort of like symbiotic type of uh, texture or thing. It's very liquidy, and um, essentially is a part of some sort of government research uh, project, which Selena plans to break in and steal some stuff, because she's Catwoman, of course. Uh, the next day, outside of Washington, D.C., she disguises herself as a Gretchen Clement, uh, Professor Clement, I should say. She's forged three PhDs and mixed her way inside. She meets a man named um, Dudlin, I believe, uh, who, or no, I'm sorry, it's Darwin, but she calls him Dudwin who basically exposits what this liquid is while she's getting changed. And with the liquid, she can see right through the wall a bunch of security men about to blow up in a safe where her uh, target is. So she turns into Catwoman and begins to steal while the men shoot at it. And the liquid starts to make the room all crazy, jumping into several different artifacts like a person's severed arm and a skull. Catwoman gets in a fight with the security men 
when all of a sudden she starts turning crazy, being affected by uh, the, the liquid piece of tech. Her ears become all pointed, and she starts getting more ferocious and demonic. And as she starts to steal the uh, diamond, Darwin says, it's not a diamond, it's a black, evil, greedy hole. And um, Selena says, you know, I told Gwen that I fall in love tonight. Here I am, my darling. I love you so much. Next, in the zone part two, battle in the black room. <laughs> uh, this this wasn't this was quite the issue. Um, I'm not sure how to take this issue to be honest. Uh, there was a lot of there wasn't actually much. It was actually a fairly straightforward issue. The art really killed it for me. I could barely tell what was going on, and the storyline in and of itself is actually rather confusing. Uh, basically, Selena is going to steal this sort of black diamond, which turns into some sort of supernatural alien technology. Um, I suppose that's a storyline that she could get involved in with, but um, up until now, the story's been rather low-key. Low She's been running into prostitutes and, uh, you know, runaway kids and up against the Russian mafia. I thought this is actually sort of, a, of an interesting change in the title's story. Whether the story was told well or not is something we can kind of discuss. So with that being in mind, with Selena Kyle running into some sort of, like, government technology which turns into some sort of demon, specifically that part... What were you guys thinking on that? Do you think it was a little farther than the t- Catwoman title should be going? Or was the storyline not so much a problem, but the way it was told? How did you think about this this uh, this plot for Catwoman? So this sort of thing, and, and it seems to have some sort of connection to Eclipso, um, has been going on in other titles. Uh, and, and I can specifically say that Team 7 has been dealing with this, even though that's five years in the past, but they're dealing with that sort of this like shard thing right now. And so it's, it's around, uh, but it is, I think <laughs> it is a strange, um, idea, subject, theme to bring into Catwoman because it just, she doesn't really deal with sort of supernatural things. You know, that's sort of Batwoman's gig. And I, I think that it should stay that way. Catwoman always seems to have the storylines that are more down to earth. And I mean, who doesn't love, like, just a simple caper and something fun with Catwoman? And that's something that just we never get. And it starts off with a caper in the very beginning, but it does a poor job because they, well, that's, oh, man, I just can't get that image out of my head where, like, you see her bottom and she's got the bullwads and stuff. I'm about to load my other gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we we start with the caper, but then we get into this, and I think it's just it's just too much. I don't think this is Catwoman's sort of thing. I think whether it's intentional or not, um, whether Anna Santi's been talking to Jeff Johns or not, it's, it could possibly be leading up to her involvement in Justice League of America, or that it could be stories more like this that we're going that are going to be featured in that book. Um, I think the is it the team leader, uh, Team Seven, is in Justice League of America as well. I think. Um, so I. I I don't necessarily mind if that's the direction, although it's kind of removing it more, a bit more from the Batman universe. So, uh, it, it, if it's flowing with her personal continuity, then it's fine. But I guess we'll have to see what happens with uh, Justice League of America next month. Yeah, I, I was thinking. I was actually thinking the storyline. I, mean, I was imagining. I was remembering that she was going to join Justice League. The JLA, exactly. And um, 
I was thinking myself, this is an awfully weird thing to take for somebody who's going to be a leaguer, especially since she's actively stealing in this in this comic. And again, that, that's got, I'm not going to say how dare she does. That is the character. That's Catwoman. But she's stealing things, and then at the end becomes some sort of like weird Vulcan demon-looking alien person. And I'm wondering, I'm I'm kind of wondering if this is going to lead anywhere. I mean, this obviously is the start of a storyline, the Black Diamond probability, whatever yeah. that's supposed to mean. Uh, but I'm wondering if Nacenti is driving it towards a natural progression towards the JLA uh, membership, or if it's just going to be kind of just randomly assigned, or maybe she'll join this team on the spot in the first issue of that series. Um, I'm not, this, this, isn't, this isn't a discussion point, it's just sort of like my thought process towards it. Uh, that's honestly, unless anybody else, anything else, anyone has anything else to add, that's honestly all I could think about. This story, this story was straightforward. I Honestly, the art really killed it for me more than the actual storytelling. I didn't care for the storytelling mostly, but it was really hard for me to tell what was going on. Even some of the lettering was kind of done in a weird uh, order, which I had to kind of reread uh, certain conversations to see who was saying what. Um, it wasn't it wasn't the worst thing, but I don't think it was all that great. So that's pretty much all I have to say on this. Yeah, as far as the art goes, I thought it was utter crap. Like, <laughs> there was a, you know, that first scene where we walk into, where she's going to the party, and you walk in and there's all these people. I didn't know parties nowadays... All you do is you just, everybody's throwing up at the same time. Did anybody notice how many people were throwing up in that one shot? Yeah. It was kind of ridiculous. I mean, like I don't know very, I don't know very many parties where people just sit there and throw up all over the place. I mean, I, I know I haven't been to parties in a couple of years because I'm not in my, I'm not in my partying days anymore. <laughs> it's kids in a hotel time, though, yeah. Just, I just have to wonder how many people are just sitting there throwing up all over the place. That was kind of weird. And then the whole, she had the, the cat of nine tails, I assume that's what it was, wrapped around her, her waist with the shurikens in the, the strings. Well, that didn't make any sense because, well, that would cut the strings. And if it was strings that are like metal or something, okay, so she has all these metal cables wrapped around her waist and somehow, when she can just fling them by putting her hands up. Like, the, the, the sequence of the panels from one panel to the next, I understand that everything is not going to show motion and things like that. But it just looked, it did not make any sense. There was there was one, like, she, she sits there, and the first one, suddenly you just see these things flying. There's There's these cables or wires or rope or whatever flying all over the place. But her hands aren't anywhere to be seen. It's as if she, like, lifted up her jacket and they just flew out. <laughs> And then two scenes later, it's the same thing. She lifts it up again, and then they're flying in a different direction, and she's using them to to smash open the window. It's like the sequence of the panels was just completely off. And I, like I said, I completely understand that you're not going to be able to show everything in every single panel. I get that. But the problem is that the basis of it is you should be showing her releasing them from her hands, not skipping the part where she grabs them out of her pocket and they're just flying in the air. That doesn't make any sense. So, I don't know. In my mind, I just have to hope that this is not the art we're going to see for the next, or for, you know, upcoming issues. Right. And also, like, a final point, like, I thought the writing, um, I'm still generally digging this more than um, when it's worked, because Wing has a certain style, which... Can be can put off sometimes, but Anna Senti. I'm not sure what it is with Anna Senti because I've read you know I've read some of her Daredevil, uh, check, Marvel check too, and like <laughs> it wasn't really. I was it was on the best stuff, but you know it was it was fine for what it was. This the dialogue here is kind of confusing. Like when she attacks those guys in the hotel room, 
Gwen's like saying, where did you get the set of balls? And she's like, just grew them today. Like, what are you talking about? A, a Catwoman attacking somebody who's attacking her? Like, is that so out of character for Selena Kyle to do? That, I mean, that in and of itself, it was, it was bad characterization. No, 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 no. That was the thing. That, that was supposed to be a joke. Because she had the, the balls attached to the wires. Oh, 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 oh God. Well, that's how that's how horrible it was. It was supposed was, to be a joke. Was, oh my god, that was horrible. Oh my god, I did not even get that. I, I guess I, I guess I'm stupid, but no, that uh, I, I'm done with Life. this. All right, so Catwoman number fifteen. I'm going to give a total of one out of five batterings. Two, two out of five, two out of five batterings. I'll split the difference. Go one point five. I really don't know how Don can say that he followed this story because even the like the art or the writing, I had no idea what was going on once she hit DC. It was just like a blur, and I have read it two times. <laughs> one out of five batterings. All right, so Catwoman number 15 gets a total of one and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Talon number three. What have you got for me? Talon number three, Sting of the Past. Story by Scott Snyder and James Tinian IV, written by James Tinian IV, art by Guillaume March, and colors by Tomu Mori. NYC, that's New York City peeps, six years ago. We see Calvin on the Brooklyn Bridge with Casey, explaining to her that he has to leave the city in order to keep her safe. She feels they have the power to fight and win, and he must stop being afraid of the court. He is afraid, afraid of what could happen to Casey and her daughter, Sarah, and he will continue to run forever if that is what it takes. Casey then speaks of a P.O. box in Central City uh, to where she will send five alternate sets of IDs for Calvin. So if he runs out of IDs, all he has to do is call her, maybe, and (laughs) and she'll send new IDs. I guess they're over. Present day at the same spot. Calvin is speaking to Sebastian over Comlink about Hudson Financials, which runs the largest bundle of court investments in North America and which has a talon in charge of security for the entire bank. Calvin has other things in mind, like checking on Casey and Sarah. While Calvin is sure that Casey got his message, a blonde bodybuilding babe who may or may not be Swedish and a guy with a dragon tattoo come after him. And while he keeps them at bay for a bit, they hit him with a trank dart. And the next thing he knows, he's waking up wet with Nikki, maybe from the five families, and Edgar, a basilisk, standing over him. He gets out of his chains, Calvin does, but his wrists are instantly wrapped with bolas. There they pop up again. And he hangs as Casey and Sarah appear. Casey later explains about her organization, one which tries to help people build a second life, people whom the authorities never could help because they are running from the most powerful criminal organizations on the planet. She has a team of top cover covert operatives exiled from organizations with as a reach and power as the court, so now they go out and save people. The tall blonde was in fact a member of the League of Assassins guarding the Lazarus Pit for Ra's al Ghul, but she got bored. All this to prove that Casey doesn't need Calvin to protect her from the court, nor does she flinch with the knowledge that the court probably knows where they are right now. She loops the angry Sebastian in and tells him that she knows Calvin and he are trying to take down the most secure banks in NYC, and her team will help. All she expects is money, and a lot of it, to help her organization. 
The next day, Calvin is using a Wayne Tech light sculpting mask as he enters Hudson Financial and is greeted by the head of security, Talon himself, Roger Black. Calvin is scanned and sent on his way, but the blonde ex-League of Assassins creates a distraction and Calvin tells the president of the bank to check on it if he wants Calvin to make an investment. The guy with the dragon tattoo pops out of the ceiling and gives Calvin his Talon suit. Talon uh, then downloads a program into the president's computer and is ready to get out of there until a second and even larger Talon grabs him by the face and pulls him outside. Some things are just not easy. To be continued. Okay. So first question is about Casey and her daughter. And I think this probably started right from issue number zero. That was sort of part of the origin story and why Calvin decided to turn because he just couldn't get rid of those two. So what are your thoughts on the development of Casey and her daughter uh, to be more involved in Calvin's life than we sort of originally saw, which we saw in this backflash in this issue? Does it seem plausible that he would have just left her? thinking the court would for, forget about her, forget about her, and go after him only. So what are your thoughts on the development that we saw in this issue? And then do you think it's realistic that he would just leave her there in New York City? I think that um, I actually didn't take too much of mind with that because I, would, I thought that by, by what he had done back in issue zero, the talents might be more concerned with him than her by that point because she was really a loose end. Although, I, I guess I, you could argue either way whether he should have taken more precautions. I had a lot of McKenna uh, flashbacks when I was thinking, when I was seeing his character, you know, being kind of tough and starting her own thing. And, like, my thought mainly, and this is sort of, like, not so much the character as is the idea of Casey, is that, like, I really wish they made her less... I, I wish she wasn't as similar, because maybe this is just me, but, like, when you first see her uh, in modern day with her arm scratches, I'm nowhere near that stupid. I was like, crap, it's McKenna. What's she doing here? Uh-huh. And I think that, like, I, I'm, all, I'm all for, you know, more black women in comics. I really do wish they kind of, like, made her, I don't know. It, it, it feels like with her being a widow and everything, it felt like a bit of a retread. You know, this whole, you know, this, this woman with an attitude kind of thing. And I kind of wish that Tanyan had made her a bit more interesting. Rather than, you know, this, this chick with an attitude. I really do. I, w- I kind of wish that, like, I like the idea of the character, but I wish that it was better. I, w- I wish it was more, I don't know, it was different somehow. That was just, the main thing I took away from that was that it felt a little repetitive, this kind of character type. Uh, that's, that's kind of what my thoughts were towards her. My thoughts on this was, well, first it was it was it's kind of believable that he left her in New York City only for the sheer fact that I'm sure there was a decent amount of time that passed between the time when they got to New York City and they were together from the time when he leaves. And I think the whole reason he left was because there was a decent amount of time that had passed and there was enough time where the, the he felt as if the court was catching up to him and that's why he was leaving. And that's that's part of the reason because, but but at the same time, like there there's a decent amount of development because we are finding out more about Casey um, that we didn't know in previous issues. You know, this entire group of people that is working with her is kind of interesting. Um, although at the same time, you know, you, you look at these little pulls. Oh, well, there's this person who used to guard one of the Lazarus pits for. Razel Ghoul, and you know, of course, it just ties back to the Batman universe, and I found that kind of interesting. Um, <clears throat> I also caught uh, Stella's little remark about how she could be Swedish, 
and there was a guy with a dragon tattoo. But, um, <laughs> but uh, for the most part, I think, I mean, I, I don't know how long this, this, this team that we're seeing here is actually going to play into it. And honestly, I really can't see what their intentions or powers are, what they're capable of, because so we have one person pulling a gun and saying she's, going, she's you know, having a stick up. And then we have another person who is hiding in the, the air vents to give Calvin his bag to me. And then two other guys who dress up like they're, or well, two guys who dress up like police officers. I mean, really? That, that's the, the, that's their capabilities. They can, they can pretend to be people. <laughs> uh, special that. So, I mean, I don't, I, I just, I guess I don't understand exactly what the idea behind what this group is, is. Because of what we've seen so far, and I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure this isn't going to play out for like five issues, like some of the other series we review. But I don't know. Overall, it's just it, to me, it just it comes across as what is the point of this group other than just to be there and to be be a larger number of characters than what we're what we've seen so far. Yeah, I will say that. Like, I'm not. I really question the 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 the. Uh, the the motive of adding more and more characters to this to this series. One A we're in the third issue and B, I think I honestly think that Calvin Rose needs to be developed more before we add on more characters for him to bounce off with. I really do think that like we should see more of his personality and flesh out his uh, him in certain situations before we add on. I mean we were talking about the idea of him teaming up with this um I forgot the guy's name already, the old guy. Like we we were thinking that that was a little bit too soon and now we're we're having this, this wacky group, you know, that, that he's playing off against. Uh, giving him a supporting cast so soon. I mean, unless the supporting cast was introduced in the very first his very first appearance, which technically Casey was, but you know, either you, you develop their personalities in that first appearance on the get go, or you do it much later after the after the main character is developed. I feel I do feel that like it's a bit of a misstep to add on the, all these uh, supporting characters when uh, Talon himself is sort of you know. I think there's more development they could do with him that might be uh, detracted when we're trying to develop all these other characters at the same time. My next question is actually about the organization that Casey is developing. Um, what are your thoughts on it? I guess Dustin already sort of touched upon it, you know, and being able to help people escape more harmful, dangerous organizations. And do you think that Casey and this organization could have a future in this book or in other Bat titles? I think the the concept of the I, I like the idea I like the idea and the concept of what this is. The thing is, I just don't see. I mean, we all know that there's a number of different organizations out there. Besides the organizations, there's also the uh, the the possibility of like trying to get henchmen out of having to work for villains and stuff like that. But henchmen aren't going to have nearly as much. Uh, fighting power or staying power, I guess is the better word. Stay, staying power to stick around for, stick around in a, in a, in a group like this. But then at the same time, um, there's not that many different groups out there where people are going to, you know, up and up leave just to leave and then to go over here. So I mean, like, I don't know that this is going to have, uh, a prominent, uh, you know, footprint on the Batman universe, but at the same time, I, I do think it's a cool idea that they could bring back if they wanted to. Um, but I think the the reality is it would have to be like 
fine-tuned a little bit more where there's even more people from more... I don't know. I think it has the possibility of being something really cool, but I just think it would need to be fine-tuned. I definitely think in the way DC is trying to do their books at the moment, there's a chance, but I, I don't think it would be much more than mention. I mean, there's always a chance that Scott Snyder would you know, reference it and stuff because because of his position on the title and stuff, but other than, you know, like the odd reference now and then, I can't see like this group of characters showing up again other than in this book. But there's always a chance. I I liked the the idea that sort of this this organization that helps get people out of a business that they don't want to be in, but the businesses or the people that they're affiliated with are really powerful and dangerous. I mean, just sort of putting Ra's al Ghul's name out there, um, and then you've got Basilisk and you've got Mafia. I just thought that was really great. I, I can see what Dustin was getting at, you know, not having uh, prominent characters, like characters that uh, are recognizable. If, if, if you don't have those, would it be able to work as a title um, or anything? I, I feel like it wouldn't be able to be a title on its own, but, you know, if... Talon doesn't have a, he's not really been in one place, I think, for a long amount of time. I mean, it's only been four issues, counting number zero. But I think it'd be cool if he stayed in New York City, um, maybe to sort of connect with this place. Because I, I think it would be cool. I, I, I didn't really see Casey as McKenna. I, I saw her as a smarter person than McKenna and less flaky. Uh, so I do disagree with Donovan on that, on that point. Uh, you do. I, I liked her. I know. Can you believe it, people? <laughs> it's over. Um, so <laughs> I was, I actually kind of like Casey and it's just been, you know, these few little flashpoints and this is the first time I think we've ever seen her speak. So if I saw more of her and this organization that she's running, I, I would really enjoy it. And this was one of my top books for me this month. So that's it for me. All right, so talent number three, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batarangs. I like the art. I thought Gillian March did pretty well. I'll give it three and a half out of five batarangs. Uh, I'm not so keen on this series. The only reason I liked last issue so much was because of the artist, and now we're back to Gear March. And while I think he's improving, <laughs> I am still not that keen on him, so 2.5 for me. And I give it four out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give talent number three a total of three and a half out of five batterings. So we'll move into our next book, Batman the Dark Knight number 15. He's here. Who? The Batman. Batman the Dark Knight number 15, written by Greg Hurwitz, with art by David Finch. The issue begins with the bandaged and brooding Bruce in bed before he becomes Batman after being barraged by bad news reports from Gotham Square. Scarecrow has released his supertoxin and it is spreading through the city, turning civilians violent. Batman takes a sample of the gas and sends it to Alfred, who takes it to Lucius Fox to try to devise an antidote. However, as Fox doesn't have any antibodies for the virus to use as a base, the antidote will take months to procure. During the fight, Batman's gas mask gets knocked off, but he's unaffected by the gas. Batman realizes that he is immune to the gas after fighting it off previously, and that he must have antibodies in his bloodstream, so he flies off to see Lucius. Damien and Alfred are waiting there, and Batman tells Damien to call Gordon and get him to take Luz to the houses in the photograph from the last issue. 
until she recognizes the Scarecrow's safe house. Alfred informs Batman that there's not enough time to replicate a sufficient amount of antibodies, so Batman has Alfred hook his bloodstream directly to the aerosol diffuser in the, in the, in the Batwing. He's warned that the amount of blood needed is likely to kill Batman, but Bruce is desperate to do anything he can to save the city. Batman begins flying over Gotham Square, using his blood in gas form as an antidote, but he starts to feel faint quickly. Batman asks Damien to control the Batwing via remote until the job is done. During the flight, Bruce passes out and even his heart stops, but as promised, Damien doesn't bring him home until the streets have been blanketed. At which point, Alfred has to work furiously to revive him. Later that night, Gordon has found the Scarecrow's hideout and Batman shows up. He kicks down the door and Scarecrow instantly submits. We then touch to Natalia, who is performing a piano concert, who apparently messes up a note to which the oh-so-fancy Gothamites can't bear to listen to anymore and leave. However, Bruce is standing at the back of the theatre and cheers her up with the promise of takeout and a dumb movie. We then cut to Scarecrow being thrown in Arkham and he's thinking about a vial of super toxin that he has sewn into his trousers or pants. But as he is thrown into the cell, the vial breaks and Scarecrow gets a taste of his own medicine. First off, the last panel really had me questioning two things. First of which was, isn't Scarecrow immune to his own toxin? And the second one is really a question about kind of Arkham and how they deal with things in that, why wasn't his costume removed? Because, (laughs) I mean, he's a repeat offender. People know who he is, so he doesn't wear his costume for any form of hiding his identity. He wears it as like... Huh? Both, both points, like, 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 is he amused with gases, and why don't they take off his costume? Honestly, that, those have been inconsistent in comics. It's just how it, how it rolls. Uh, it isn't that so I was thinking, like, I mean, I mean, I, I was reading it as no one knows his identity, and if they didn't, why wouldn't they take off the mask anyway? Just to, so they did. But he, he's not wearing it as, like, to hide his identity. He's wearing that as, like, Device that's part of his costume. That's what he needs to be the scarecrow. So surely the point of Arkham is rehabilitation. So why wouldn't you remove that and then try and get down to base and like heal him on a mental level? Why would you let him keep that and hold on to that persona? Now I'm not saying I'm not going to argue and say that they should let him keep it, but I am going to say based off of what we've seen in some of the other books, like. We saw in Batman last month where we saw um, the Riddler in the backup wearing his outfit with the question marks etched into it. I mean, even if he's doing that himself, why would they allow him to do it? But they are. It's just what they're doing. It's the same thing. Like, we've seen this in the past where whenever Arkham Asylum comes into play where there are certain aspects that are very questionable. And it just comes down to the fact that they're allowing them to do certain things because they are claiming that it's going to better them, but ultimately it's not bettering them at all. It's just really letting them get back to exactly where they were before. I guess the only justification you could have is if the Joker is still running Arkham Asylum and they put Scarecrow in Arkham Asylum as a cover so that Batman thinks everything's fine. And then they don't really care about the costume because they're just under Joker's control. I think that's a bit (laughs) far-fetched. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Which is another 
we're starting to run into continuity issues already in the new 50s. What do you mean already? <laughs> for years. Uh, well, if no one's got anything else for that. Um, I was wondering if you liked the characterizations in this book, because I thought that a lot of them were pretty strong. But I was wondering if you thought Bruce would really risk his life for Gotham. And I know he's got, uh, like, blocks and stuff set up so that they wouldn't work this out, but would you really think that he'd risk using his own blood as an antidote? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, DNA and... I mean, I know it's, he's not supposed to be on the system, but even so... Oh, it just reminded me of a Smallville episode when when this was all going down. If you remember, there were sort of zombie-ish people. I think this was season nine, if I had to guess. And then, and then Clark realized that his blood could cure the people. So then he sends it up like his blood is attached to this atmospheric thing, and it it rains his blood basically. But it really reminded me of that. Um. So I think I could see definitely Bruce doing this. And I think we're sort of getting more to the point of Batman being more of a symbol rather than the person under the mask, whether or not this... And this was something actually that sort of really sparked um, my thinking in, in a lonely place for dying because Bruce actually says that, that it's more about the symbol, not the man. Uh, but I think it's really being brought back ever since Nolan's films. So I think, you know, if he's got to sacrifice his life for Gotham, then he's going to go do it. But I thought it was really poor form at the very end when he said, see, I told you nothing was going to happen. And then Alfred just throws the tea tray down <laughs> and, and walks away. I thought, whoa. Uh, but that that was sort of rude. I think that was a little too much. But I, I could see that sort of thing happening. I, I thought that was really good characterization because you could see how frustrated he was and having to you know you get hints about um, Alfred getting worried about Bruce and he, he said you know I'd, you shouldn't be doing this you're putting too much strain on yourself and then to have that thrown back in his face when he's just like it's almost as if Batman doesn't know or Bruce doesn't know that Alfred saved his life and brought him back from the dead and then to have him say that he just gets pissed off I, I like that a lot yeah. Yeah, no, I agree that Alfred was spot on, but yeah, I thought oh, that was okay. poor form that Bruce would bring that up. See, no, I oh, okay. that. yeah, yep. In real title, Shipmaster Wayne. No, <laughs> um, I liked it. The characterization a lot. I thought that was, this is some of the strongest characterizations that the characters have seen in a while. I really do, because uh, I, I at first when I was first reading, I thought you know Batman's like you know there's only one way to save Gotham City with my own blood. I was like, God, that's over the top. But really. When I thought about it, I was like, you know, if driven to this point, there's not a moment's hesitation that Batman would have to save the city. That's all he's about, saving Gotham City. So I thought that, like, this is actually, although this might seem over the top, this is actually one of the, one of the things that Batman would absolutely do. Um, and even more so than, like, uh, Alfred's, you know, hesitations over it, I liked Robin. I thought Damien was terrific in this issue because this is a situation where he's watching his father go up against Gotham City's, you know, worst. And... We've seen in other comics how Damien sort of like, you know, thinks he knows how Batman operates and thinks he knows how Bruce does things. But we see him go against a situation where Damien's scared. He's scared for Gotham and he's scared for Batman. And he's kind of, it's sort of like having, cause I guess you could still say that he's a little still kind of new in, in the Robin role. So he's seeing a situation that all the other Robins have seen where Batman just throws himself over the edge. I mean, Jason, Tim, and Dix have all seen it. And he's watching his father kind of just put himself on this cross. And, you know, nearly die for the city. 
And even the end where, where he says, you know, I, t- I promise him I, w- I would, you know, make sure that the remote control is, you know, sane till the end. I thought that like, uh, that, like that throughout the scene where Bruce nearly dies and, and, and that, uh, breakfast or lunch or whatever it is where Alfred is so, and I think Bruce is having fun with him. He's trying to lighten the mood, but Alfred's just, you know, emotional at that point. Uh, he's not having it. Yeah. He's, he's not in the mood for any of it. I, and Damon says, if you don't go, I will. I thought that was actually a nice development because it wasn't, you know, Damon saying, Oh, why doesn't Pennyworth understand? You know, it's sort of like he understands his father's point of view, but he also takes Alfred's emotion towards, cause he was there watching, you know, thinking that he might die. So I thought all around the characterization really made this issue work. And, I, and it, it was, I was very pleased with it. I, I'm, uh, I think, uh, along with Joe, that like, there wasn't so much of a problem as it was, that it was very, very well done. Yeah, I thought overall it was, it was pretty, I, I thought this was a great way to end this, this story arc. Um, except for that little bit at the end with Scarecrow being chucked inside his cell in his costume. But even so, I mean, even, you know, it was almost as if, you know, justice is served because now he's gonna have to face his own fears and stuff like that. So, I mean, I thought it was a good way to end the story. Um, I, ha- I have to say overall, I don't think that this Scarecrow story, even if it, it was the, the Scarecrow story to introduce Scarecrow for the New 52, I don't think it was, it's not that memorable, but, uh, yeah. I, I think it was, I think it was done well. Um, I don't have any complaints about the actual, you know, the actual story that took place. I just don't think it's very memorable. It's not going to be the Scarecrow storyline, like, um, what we saw, and I'm not saying Penguin Pen- Pain and Prejudice was the Penguin story, but it was, it got very close to being the Penguin story. So with, with this, again, I can see what they're doing, and obviously they're going to try to do the same thing with the Mad Hatter with the next story arc, which, you know, if that's what we're going to see with, you know, Batman the Dark Knight, where we just see, you know, characters, that we haven't seen in a while come in and have really good stories done for, you know, three, four, five issues or whatever. I'm, I'm open to that. And I think that's a good idea because there's a lot of characters who don't get a lot of attention nowadays. And if we bring those characters in for, you know, a decent story, even if it's not the most memorable story of the character, if it's a good story, then I think that's a job well done. So I thought this was, a, this was a good, this was a good end to the story. Um, even if it wasn't the most memorable, it, it it was a decent story. I definitely agree with that. And even if it wasn't a memorable Scarecrow story, I really think that it progressed uh, Bruce and Damien's relationship, even though it's not Batman and Robin. And I think, like Dom was saying, I thought Damien's um, characterization was really strong, even though I don't like the way David Finch draws him. Um, wow. I, I really liked him in this book. I thought he was written really well. And I just loved the the way that he had to carry out Bruce's instruction, even though he knew what it was doing to him, because he knew that if he disobeyed and brought him home, even though Bruce would be weak, he'd still be angry that uh, Damien dis- disobeyed. So I thought it was a really strong issue. All right, so Batman the Dark Knight, number 15, I'm going to give four out of five batterings. Real brief art note, uh, in the scene where Alfred is, uh, has the fibrillators on Bruce, one, you take the shirt off when you do that. <laughs> and two, you can tell that, and this, this happened in the last issue that the, the image is switched because Robin's R symbol is on the, on the right side with the R backwards. So clearly the, the original, uh, drawn image was mirrored, but who cares? Uh, well, four point, sorry? 
And so if you're going to get technical, uh, defibrillators only uh, reset the heartbeat in rhythm, they don't actually start it again. So those would those would be pointless as well. Take that, Hurwitz. Uh, <laughs> you call yourself a novelist. I will give this four out of five batterings. And I give it three out of five batterings. All right, so Batman the Dark Knight number 15 gets a total of four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batwoman number 15. Batwoman number 15, interlude the second. Co-writer and art on pages 1 and 20, J.H. Williams III. Co-writer, W. Hayden Blackman. Art on pages 2 through 19, Trevor McCarthy, coming from his Birds of Praise stint there. Colorist on pages 1 and 20, Dave Stewart. And colorist on pages 2 through 19, Guy Major from Batgirl. My Batgirl run. (laughs) Okay, this is Maggie's story. Maggie and Harvey Bullock look up into the sky and see Batwoman and Wonder Woman soaring, and Maggie asks several questions about mythology and religion as she hears several sounds which which distract and confuse her. She is pulled back several hours where she is at her apartment, poring over the children taken by the weeping woman, and obliquely realizes she has not heard from Kate in days. A flash to another time sees Kate shooting two Medusa soldiers, which happen to be rushing her. They have no fear of bullets and do not moan or cry before death, but only utter Matera. Okay, a flash to another time sees a horde of Medusa soldiers and GCPD fighting in the streets. Maggie attempting to interrogate one of them, but getting nowhere. Reflecting on a day when her father locked her in a tool shed in 110 degree weather, and then realizing her mother was inept and decided never to ask for help again. Yet we see Maggie ask Detective Chase, or, yeah, Detective Chase, to get some of her men to the front line to prevent the GCPD from being slaughtered. Chase then tells Maggie that some of Maggie's friends are looking to become martyrs. Hmm, what does that mean? Maggie has never been more fearful than going into that Catholic church. She finds a group of the parents whose children have been taken ready to make a flash mob, just like in Flash Dance. Okay. Maggie tries to explain that the police will handle it. Another parent offers that they have guns. Then Maggie gets more forceful and takes down the ringleader, asking them to stay inside because her children need their parents alive. One breaks down and prays that her husband, who happened to go out on his own, the fool, uh, to bring the children back, makes it out alive. Book and Maggie take to the streets and find the husband in front of a group of Medusa soldiers. He kills one, which drops to a group of other dead soldiers, right before the weeping woman rushes in, saying the streets were never safe for the little ones, and now she washes them clean. She offers to save the husband, but he explains that only God can do that. And he forgives her. Maggie doesn't quite understand this act of Christian love and begins doubting whether she will be able to bring the children home. At least she can bring the husband back to the group at the church. Back on the streets, Maggie, still with the disorienting headache and bullock, see the procession of children on chains, but they are blocked from it. Apparently someone saw that Django Unchained movie, but he was chained at that point. Suddenly, everything, all the memories of the past few days come rushing back to Maggie, and she realizes that God loves her enough to keep Kate out of this madness. Using ring composition, we see the beginning image as the end image once more of Batwoman and Wonder Woman sailing in. Next up, we have chaos. Okay, so my first thing is actually a question, a question that I was a little confused about. So in the beginning, 
which I guess in terms of the timeline of this particular issue, we can say is uh, the end. During the many questions that Maggie is asking on that page one, she says, why did he take my daughter? Does God really hate me? Uh, and the he is capitalized, so she's obviously talking about God. But before this, uh, after she saves the husband, she asks whether she could forgive someone if that person took her daughter, her Jamie. So I'm wondering uh, whether this first, he took my daughter, is more of a metaphorical one, uh, since she no longer has custody of her, or is there something else with this, or is it a mistake? I don't know if any of you ever caught that, but it just sort of threw me for a loop, and I wasn't sure what that meant. Yeah, I, I noticed the capitalization and the the context of talking about God. Um, I assumed it was unknown backstory I know that she was formerly a Superman character so I mean I, I have no idea before this what her who her character is or what she got up to but um so I, I assumed that was something that either was already established or that we'd find out later but okay. I did notice it definitely sounds like uh her daughter's dead but then we know yeah. from past issues that she's not so it could just be what he take away from me is in, you know, not with me anymore, opposed to right. the uh, the darker way that I think we read it. Okay. Um, okay, so, yeah, thank you for answering that question. Uh, so for my actual discussion point, so in issue number zero, if you remember, we get a good glimpse of uh, Kate's life, and I think that this was beautifully done through her complete narration of the events um, going on in that particular issue, and basically it was it was like a book, right? Because there are all these words. There weren't really were balloons, but she was narrating everything. So how do you think this particular narration held up against that? Do we see more of Maggie in it um, or more of the story? I'm going to say I really thought that this was probably one of the better issues that I've read of Batwoman in a while. And... I know the last time we reviewed Batwoman, I specifically stated that it felt like the art was rushed, and we talked about how maybe the coloring was, you know, there was a little bit more work from the colorist based off the art because there maybe there wasn't enough time for J.H. Williams to do all the art. This one, we, we can clearly see that there was only two pages of J.H. Williams, the first and the last, and <clears throat> it's essentially the same page, only different coloring. Um, and then everything else was done by Trevor McCarthy. I felt as if the actual, the entire, the entire script of the comic, the the dialogue and the monologues and all that stuff. I I really and the and the thoughts. I really thought that it was. I, I just felt as if it was like smoother. It was there. It, it flowed. It flowed better based off of everything that we, based compared to what we've seen in in the last couple issues, and I don't know if that's just because, like I've said in the past, that maybe J.H. Williams, as he gets down to the part the point where he starts to not have as much time to do stuff, as far as like he's spending so much time doing the art, you know, he can't necessarily fine tune the the uh, the writing as much as he would like to. I have to wonder if um, that plays into it. So, I mean, like, I thought the the, the flow of the story was pretty nice. And it kind of reminded me of, um, you know, when we look back to those issues that had the six different stories of each pe- each person, and it focused it on, you know, the six different people. It was telling one overall story, but it was telling from, like, six, not necessarily six different point of views from 
but six people's story that all just made up one story. And I thought as if this issue was basically Maggie's story. Um, you know, the whole Batwoman, or Batwoman and, and Wonder Woman that we saw in the last issue, it doesn't have, it's like completely different. This is, this is Maggie's story. This is from Maggie's perspective. This is what Maggie's dealing with right now. So I thought, um, overall, I just, I, I thought this was really good. And it's nice to see less focus on Wonder Woman for an issue. Um, and I'm interested, to s- I, I, and if they continue on this path, I expect to see an issue soon where probably not the entire issue, but a good chunk of the issue is dealing with uh, Betty and uh, Jacob Kane. So I'm looking forward to that. I, I absolutely love this issue, and I really loved issue number zero, having Kate's narration like that. And, and I think without those word bubbles and other people sort of popping in, you really get to the heart of the character. And I feel like this is the first time that we've ever seen this much of Maggie, because we've really only seen her as it was pertaining to Kate or the case, but we really get um, more insight into her and, and a little bit of backstory and to see that she's had some troubles as well. And um, obviously having that, that religious um, sort of struggle that she was having was was really heartbreaking and then going into the church as well. But I, I love this. I, I thought it was just great storytelling, and I just thought it was well done with the narration. I, d- I definitely did like having some backstory for Maggie because, like I said, I didn't know anything about her. I think it would have been interesting to see perhaps slightly more on her relationship with Kate just from her perspective, but I realised that this probably wasn't the place, especially what's going on, uh, whereas all the backstory we did learn kind of flowed with the story. So I thought that, like Dustin was saying, was very smooth, and uh, whilst I'm not as keen on Trevor McCarthy as I am on J.H. Williams, I thought that they did it well where Trevor McCarthy is the is the, uh, I guess, flashback or the story that's taking place in the past. And uh, they've kind of kept the colouring. They're fairly consistent with that, where they have the slightly rougher, almost pa- uh, painted kind of, um, with the inks that are normally very thick and quite rough, um, which I think lends itself to the kind of the memory or the past. So I thought it was very effective. My final point. Uh, We've talked, I think, before of Snyder's penchant for longer story arcs and how it works for him uh, because it's working for the story and he doesn't really do anything uh, that's unnecessary. And this story, if you think about it, more or less with, you know, other side stories intermixed, but really if we think about Medusa, because Weeping Woman has been connected all the time, the children being kidnapped, everything has been going on for 15 issues. Has this length fit the story? Has it kept its strength throughout? Well, I can say that I don't think... I think there's been numerous issues where I've wondered to myself, why are we still thinking about this? But then, at the same time, there's other issues where I'm not even thinking about the fact that, wow, this is really the same exact story we've gotten from the very beginning because they do a decent job of like focusing on these other characters because they're... Are so because there's so many characters within this story, they good they do a very good job of focusing on them, and you kind of lose your you lose the you lose the focus on the the overall story, and you, the more the focus goes in more on the specific character that they're trying to focus on at that point, 
And I think that's it's a good way to do it if you're going to play these long stories. Uh, I mean, they've done a very good job of, despite you know, f- you know, focusing on multiple different characters, still keeping the overall idea of Medusa and the Weeping Woman. They've been doing a good job of making sure to keep all of these ideas set in your mind, you know, even if it's not a prominent thing. So I think, you know, ultimately, do I really want them to be, you know, doing Medusa for another 15 issues? I hope not. I really want them to to do something else. But I think they've done a decent job, despite the fact that it's been going as long as it has. Um, They've done a decent job of making it work. I think the main thing that slowed the storyline down is the change in artists and stuff. And I know that they were for different arcs, but it's still the same ongoing storyline. Um, I, I think there, there are probably better ways to keep the same theme going throughout without it seeming to drag so much. Because I, I, I feel that this, I mean, issues like this are kind of a break from it almost where we're not focusing on the same thing, so I, I feel that it has it's definitely slowed down from what I thought it was going to be in having it go on for so long. But yeah. I I'm still enjoying it, but I think it's I've lost some passion for the storyline now. And it's I guess because you're not I'm no longer waiting for an ending, it just seems to kind of keep on going. So like Dustin, I'm hoping it does wrap up. And then we have something new to look forward to. Yeah, I actually wondered to myself, I was thinking about some of these different series, and, you know, um, Hayden W. Hayden Blackman, he's a novelist by trade. That's what he does. And I just had to wonder, you know, and then we look at some of the other novelists by trades that have been working on some of the comics, like Greg Hurwitz, um, Dwayne Swarzynski. When we look at their stories, and if you really look at the length and how many issues they're doing, they're much longer than the normal comic writer story arcs. Even Scott Snyder's kind of a, you know, not that's not really what I'm looking at. But you look at, like, Gail Simone and Judd Winnick and even Fabian Saiza or Peter Tomasi, and these guys have been writing comics for an extended amount of time, and they've been writing comics and they you know they they've gotten they they're in the more in the mindset of you know writing stories to work for trades because that's just what they've been doing all of these years but then you look at these these people that have come in like Dwayne Zrzinski and Greg Hurwitz and W Hayden Blackman and and their novelists and their stories are much much longer so like if you look at Birds of Prey there's not really a specific spot where you can go, okay, this is a perfect place to cut it and to make a trade paperback. Now, they did it, I think it was with the first six issues or so, but for the most part, they, you know, they did not, it's not really necessarily the best place to cut because it just continues on. It's the same thing with uh, what we just talked about with Batman the Dark Knight. It was, he started this story back in June, and he's been doing it now for, I think, seven issues, the Scarecrow story. So, I mean, like, these stories are much longer than what what most of the stuff that we've been accustomed to have been. So I have to wonder if maybe that has to do with the reason of why this story is as long as it is, is because at the heart of it, there's there's a novelist having a big part of the the writing. Wasn't there an edict in DC though to ideally not write for the trade, to, to write as many issues for your story as as it takes? 
And I, yeah, and there was, and I'm sure. I mean, I mean, I don't know if that actually was a real thing, but I remember hearing, you know, different interviews. Being at, there was different interviews that where writers were saying, you know, they specifically did not tell us you need to write with the idea of this needs to be a trade. But I mean, you got to think to yourself, they, you know, they might be told that, but that's you, you can't. They might be being told that by their editors, but then the editors who are actually working on the uh, the actual paper, uh, trade paperbacks and stuff like that, they're probably thinking to themselves, "This is a freaking nightmare." <laughs> so, well, that's how that's how we, we did it in the olden days, in the nineties. All right, so Batwoman number fifteen. I'm going to give a total of four out of five batterings. I'll give Batman, Batman, Batwoman, uh, four out of five batterings. I will give Batwoman three and a half out of five batterings. This was by far my favorite book, this um, this batch here. And, you know, I think it really proves that Batwoman, the title is not only about Kate, but I think it's also about, you know, her better half, Maggie, as well. And I think it really, I think this really pushed forth that idea and we really got to know Maggie more. And so I thought it was brilliant, brilliant. Uh, so 4.5 out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Batwoman number 15 a total of four out of five batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Red Hood and the Outlaws number 15. I could definitely get into the superhero gig. Written by Scott Lobdell, art by Timothy Green II. Uh, the issue starts off, uh, for those of you who haven't been reading Red Hood and the Outlaws and haven't looked on the website to read um, Ed's reviews of Red Hood and the Outlaws, um, Jason is in a compromising position um, with uh, Isabella. Yes, that Isabella, the uh, flight attendant that we remember for s- from so many issues ago, um, is in a compromising position when Harvey Bullock and uh, the GCPD SWAT team enters in and is convinced that he has done something to Isabella. After uh, Jason takes um, the SWAT team out very quickly in nothing but a towel, he proceeds to tell Harvey Bullock that she has been overdosed with something and uh, she needs to be treated right away. He then steals a police car and drives away when suddenly he is um, gassed by Joker gas. <coughs> um, half a continent away, Starfire is uh, with Roy Harper and Roy is working on the spaceship that they have and trying to fix different things. We cut back and we see um, Jason, who does not have his mask on, um, but there is a red hood mask that he has with a crowbar in it stuck to the wall. And uh, Jason finds out that the Joker has taken him and given him a um, a drug to basically um, paralyze him for the next hour. Um, Joker starts trading back and forth with... Uh, Jason talking about how um, he is basically explains his reasons for doing what he's doing. It's it's basically a explanation of everything that's been happening in the other books. Um, if you haven't been reading the other books, um, there's also a lot of notes referring to some of the events that have happened in other in other uh, issues as well. Um, very. Very quickly, uh, we find out that uh, Jason was is not necessarily going to be paralyzed for the next hour because he attacks the Joker, and as the Joker uh, is a, is pretty much in a compromising position, we find out that um, Jason's the the crowbar that Jason Todd is using is actually 
um, an electric, is electric, and Joker basically sets it off to zap Jason back away from the compromising position that he has put the Joker in. At Gotham General Hospital, we find out that the police officer is telling Bullock that the, uh, woman is, is definitely, uh, she was, she's an, it's an overdose, and, uh, Bullock explains to the officer, there's, there's definitely, there's, there's, uh, nothing that makes any sense about this. She's not a drug addict. There's no signs that she could be a drug addict. Um, we find Harvey calling a, uh, number on the girl's phone labeled J First Class, which we would know as Jason Todd. And, uh, he explains that, um, he leaves him a message basically explaining that he doesn't know exactly what's going on, um, but he thinks it was because of him that is whatever has happened to her has happened. Um, as Starfire is about to, uh, I guess, lay down with Roy Harper for the gazillionth time. <laughs> if you know what um, we're saying. We find out that uh, Roy is actually monitoring Jason's phone calls and... He decides he and Starfire has to take off right away towards Gotham City to help Jason out. Uh, meanwhile, Jason is waking up, and now he has a red hood mask on, and he starts basically seeing all of these different signs um, referring back to some of the points that we saw in the Zero issue where could Jason, could Jason Todd actually have been created by the Joker? Um this is even more so closely related to the different signs that Joker clearly knows who uh, Jason Todd slash Red Hood slash former Robin is. Uh, we get to the end of, I guess, the, the trail that Joker is leading Jason Todd on, where jo Joker pulls a lever and Jason Todd falls into a pit where he is joined with Tim Drake. Meanwhile, on the rooftop of a building in Gotham City, Roy Harper and Starfire are talking that they need to find, find out exactly where Jason is when they run into none other than the Teen Titans. To be continued in Teen Titans, to be continued sort of in Teen Titans number 15. Alright, so that was Red Hood and the Outlaws number 15. So my first thing I want to talk about is, you know, obviously we, it's been a while since we reviewed Red Hood and the Outlaws. So based off of the fact that it's been a while, we don't necessarily know everything that's going on, how well do you think this set up the event of Death of the Family for readers who weren't necessarily knowing what's going on in the other bad books? And how well do you think uh, new readers who could be picking up this issue for the first time were actually... Um, we all know that with the crossover events, new readers sometimes pick up an issue because it has to deal with the, the crossover. If you were to pick up this issue for the first time and read it, do you think they did a, a good enough job of explaining the, what the book is about for readers who have never read this before? <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> uh, they might get that the Joker is attacking, and uh, they might have a vain idea. I, I don't know. No. What, what am I saying? Um, cause I think that you need the context of the zero issue to understand Joker's relationship with Jason Todd or even who Jason Todd is. Um, I don't think this is new. I don't think this is new really friendly in the slightest really at all. The answer is no. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't following the storyline. Um, 
To be honest, I just skipped to the bits where I saw Joker and read those. I mean, you've got to be an expert to be able to recognize that that particular bullet crushed in that particular manner came out of Jason Todd's father's behind. Here, here's the thing that in my mind, okay? Obviously, what, Scott Lobdell's still playing into the fact that the Joker actually created Jason Todd and molded Jason Todd to be who he is, okay? That's clearly what they're, they're, they're playing here, okay? We, but here's, here's the thing. So, it all comes down to what I've said in previous issues as far, as far as does, is it possible that the Joker actually does know who all these people are? And the, the thing is, I, I really have a, I have to wonder about this because if the Joker knows who Jason Todd is and actually in place Jason Todd to be a Robin for Batman, then Joker does know who Batman is. It's not impossible for Joker to know. So if they're continuing to play this off instead of just having that little backup in that zero issue be this thing about, oh, well, maybe the Joker's just nuts and they're really trying to, like, go for this, then they have basically just given away the the ending of this entire thing, which is basically, here it is, the Joker knows who he is, because, well, if he didn't, how could he have done this thing with Jason Todd? And, like, I can't see this and what they're saying as, you know, the Joker's just crazy and he's screwing with him, because the items that he's putting in front of them are so extremely specific that it's just not possible. Yeah, exactly. Like, if he doesn't know who... Tim, Jason, and Dick are, the explanation is going to be really stupid. And if he does know, then the story's blown. So it's kind of a two-way scenario, which the story doesn't have a lot of chances to really win. I agree. I mean, there's always a chance that, just from what we know of the Zero issue, that he knows who he is and just Jason. But I, I think they're going to have to work really hard to find out a an explanation that pleases everyone, which I don't think is going to be the case. Yeah, I agree. I think it's clear, especially from Jason's, that he, he's got to know something. All right, so then my next question is, if they're still playing into the Joker has created it, well, you know what, I don't even want to really talk about that, because we've talked about that with the Zero Issue and how ridiculous that, that entire thing could possibly be, but... Could talk about I, it again. I guess then... <laughs> Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't really want to. <laughs> Obviously, Scott Lobdell is writing Teen Titans and Red Hood and the Outlaws. Is the necessity to bring the two books together really necessary? Because, you know, Tim Drake and Jason Todd, we, we saw in previous issues way long time ago when we actually reviewed the series that there is some kind of weird connection between Jason Todd and Tim Drake. It was never really delved into you know, fully, and maybe that's the point of why this is these two series are tying together at this point, because we're actually going to see that since they are both being held captive by the Joker at the same time. But I guess I, I'm, I'm missing something here, because I will t- we'll talk about Teen Titans number 15, which, as it says, it kind of, sort of continues this story, but not really. I didn't read Teen Titans number 14, so I don't really know what leads up to this, but there's, it seems to me there's a gap. And, uh, I'll talk more about that when we talk about Teen Titans 15, but the question I guess I want to present here is, if a writer is actually writing multiple series, is it 
necessary for them to constantly cross over their series. This isn't the first time Red Hood and, and T- Teen Titans have crossed over. And it can be explained that, yes, they both include back characters, so because of that, they can cross over. But we also know that Scott Lobdell is writing uh, Superman, and we also know that, for whatever reason, Red Hood and the Outlaws has a place with this hell on Earth involving Starfire. Oh, so, is it necessary for writers to be crossing over their books just for the sake of being able to do it because they're writing multiple series? And if they, and if, and because they do that, what does that, how is that, you know, how, how much story elements are you actually getting out of having these crossovers between multiple series written by the same writers compared to these writers who are writing a single story in a single book? Well, for one thing, um, the Teen Titans book I do know, which I don't really read, but I do know that has that has healthy crossover with the Superboy book, which Lobdell, to my knowledge, still writes. But yes, so there's that. Um, you know, they can do it if they want to. Uh, they're free to do it if they want to. I remember this is this is where I become Mr. Continuity Man again. I remember uh, back in the day when Chuck Dixon was writing a lot of bat books. He was writing Robin, Detective Comics. Uh, later in '97, he was writing Nightwing. And I believe he was writing Birds of Prey all concurrently. And those really didn't cross over that much. I mean, and even, even if they're separated from, um, you know, storylines like Legacy and Cataclysm and Contagion and all that stuff, like, like Robin, and obviously there are Robin and Nightwing wouldn't cross over because those are in two different cities. Uh, Detective Comics really wouldn't either. Um, so that's an example of a writer having the same characters in different series kind of say on their own. And I think that's sort of the point of the different series. Uh, I think the question is not so much should they cross over, but you know, should there should there always be a story where they have to cross over? Because on one hand you have Scott Snyder's stuff always crossing over, on the other hand you have uh, Scott Lobdell's stuff crossing over, and I think I think the question should be should the story count as much? Um, Scott Snyder, is, I've heard him uh, in an interview saying that like people complain that he always has these overarching stories, and his mindset is that. He wants to tell the best Batman story he can. Those can't really be contained in single-issue stories, which I can sort of understand, but his story is always typically... I think you can read Batman on his own and not really need the other satellite titles to have uh, links be brought over. Love Dell, on the other hand, I think that he's a very much like a, a full-picture kind of guy, and I believe that in this certain instance... I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I actually like how Red Hood and Teen Titans cross over, but it is... It does feel a little needless. I will, I will admit that. I, I just wonder, when they cross them over, do these writers have purely altruistic reasons? Meaning, no like thought of, of the benefit to themselves. And I, I feel like, I guess, as a negative Nancy, that for some of them, and I'm not going to put slander out there, but I wonder if Lobdell, because... I feel like I don't know what the numbers are. You can uh, back me up on that there, Dustin. But Teen Titans and Red Hood, I feel like, are not maybe the best sellers. I mean, I'm sure they're higher up there than Catwoman and Batwing and such. But if you're doing a crossover, then you're going to have to force people, if, if they're buying one book, to potentially get the full story by buying both of those books. And who is that going to benefit? Well, it's going to benefit DC, but it's also going to benefit the writer. And so I I definitely think that it's not necessary. If it benefits the story, yes. 
But as we're going to see in Teen Titans, I mean, I feel like Roy and Starfire just pop up in the last panel. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. I, I really think they do. Just the last panel, they pop up, and there they are with the Teen Titans. So I just bought two issues, potentially, to fill out that story because I was told that they were going to interact. And really, I only needed to rip out the last page. And so, I, you know, I basically wasted $2.97. So, I mean, that's that's my thing. I, I don't think it's necessary unless... They're really, you know, putting the pen to the paper. So I, I definitely have the faith that Snyder's going to be doing it, but not for something like this. I will back you up on the the sales numbers. They're not they're not amazing, but Teen Titans and Red Hood and the Outlaws are pretty much right there next to each other. Um, back in November, since December numbers aren't up yet, um, back in November, Teen Titans was around thirty nine thousand. Red Hood was at thirty thirty eight, just about thirty eight. So I mean, like. They're within, you know, 2,000 issues, 2,000 of each other. Um, but even so, when you look at that, Batwoman is actually lower ranked compared to that Batwoman sitting at 36. So it's not that, I, I think the thing is, most of his books are probably working off of each other. And that's what I'm looking at it as, as, you know, the, the actual issues. The actual, all the stuff that's, that Lobdell is writing, he's writing as this giant cohesive thing, so that way he has, instead of having one giant, and this is gonna probably sound bad, but I can't think of any way to other put, other way to put it. Instead of having one really great book, for example, Batman, which sits, you know, at the, you know, very close to the top, usually at least number two, number one, somewhere right around there, um, with 160,000 issues sold in the month. Instead of having just one really good issue, he has three or four different comics that he's writing on a month that are just mediocre. And his numbers will still add up to, you know, that number, because if he's sitting at 40,000, just about 40,000 issues, per series, and he's writing for series, he's selling just as many issues as Scott Snyder is with Batman, but it doesn't, I mean, you just have to look at it from the perspective of they're mediocre compared to a really good series, so I don't know. That's my thoughts. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 15, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batarangs. <laughs> Red Hood and the Outlaws again. I will give it two and a half out of five batarangs. I agree. Two and a half out of five batterings. I just have to say that in the 80s, there was an X-Men issue where Arcade kidnapped the X-Men in their plain clothes. Storm Marvel happened Country. to have taken... Yeah, I know. She had to take a shower. She was in her bathrobe. Then he puts them in these giant pinballs, and then all of a sudden they're in their costumes, and Scott says, we're in our costumes. So he actually pointed that out. Why Jason didn't think it was weird that he was in his costume with his hood on is beyond me, but three out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Red Hood and the Outlaws number 15 a total of two and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Teen Titans number 15. Don't let me find you out here again. We're trying to help you. I don't need help. Not my diagnosis. Written by Scott Lobdell, art by Brett Booth. The uh, issue starts off with, who would you expect? Batgirl. Hmm. Batgirl comes on the scene and approaches uh, Wonder Girl, Kid Flash, Bunker, and Solstice, and uh, tells them that essentially her and the and Teen Titans tell her that 
her number was the only one that was on Red Robin's phone or communicator device, so they had no choice but to contact her. After she basically explains that she has her own problems to deal with right now, she gives them a crash course on what's going on with the Joker, basically setting up um, what's happening uh, with Death of the Family in Teen Titans. Um, she explains that um, Tim is probably taken hostage right now by the Joker, and all they can do is just help and look for him um, using a lot of the Joker's previous locations that he committed crimes. Uh, we then see Tim Drake, who is, as we already knew, taken hostage by the Joker, and uh, he has, and Tim Drake makes a comment about how he is, he is in his old Red Robin costume, which we would know as his Robin costume from the 90s, um, and his, his weird um, cape that appears to be feathers is being worn by the Joker. Um, we then see the Teen Titans getting uh, directions to go to all these different places uh, that the Joker could be holding Tim at, um, and Batgirl takes off. Um, as the Teen Titans split up into two teams to basically check out um, these different locations that the, that Tim could be held at, Joker explains to Tim that uh, he is doing all, everything that he's doing, and he's doing the Titans because he's actually going to have the Titans take themselves out by having to fight Jokerized um, hobos in numerous different locations. Um, there's a small tie to an event that's happening in Birds of Prey, talking about how some of the characters who have specific mutant powers are having um, problems uh, controlling their powers currently. And uh, then, lo and behold, who shows up? Well, Roy Harper and Starfire, who show up and say they're about to get a, a lesson in how to defeat the Joker's henchmen. Starfire in a different costume, by the way. All right, so this is... Um, we already talked about some of this. I guess the big thing is... So again, um, there's no signs at all that, the, in, the, in this issue specifically, that the Joker has any idea who Tim Drake is, other than the fact that he just states that Tim is full of himself, and but, I mean, he could get that just from interacting with him as Red Robin. Um, they do a good job of not saying he used to be Robin and saying he only used to be Shut Red up. Robin. <laughs> that's not a mix-up they'll have to fix for the trade, that's for sure. I guess the first thing I want to talk about is, uh, well, one, this isn't something I actually want to talk about, oh. but I, I just have to say, why is it that the Titans meet on a place called Scott's Toys? I noticed that too, yeah. That was just kind of odd, because um, clearly this is one of Scott's many toys. I, I do need Stella to say Joker in her weird way, just so that we can uh, get... <laughs> It the way that that Batgirl said it in the uh, the issue because it was clearly written exactly the way that Stella said it. All the time. Joker. Yeah, there you go. So, um, okay. So the first thing I want to talk about is Batgirl. Why in the world would Batgirl be the only number on the yeah. communicator of Tim yep, Drake? Yep. Number one. Number two. Batgirl has a thousand things going yep. on, 
in her own series, and she's also popped up in, well, she's, uh, they all popped up in Batman, but she has her own stuff going on in her own series right now. So how in the world could she possibly just pop in to basically give a small little geographic lesson as to the whereabouts of certain places in Gotham City to the Teen Titans who just happen to have no idea how to do anything until she shows. I think it'd be Nightwing, honestly, because there's a there's a moment in time in his issue where he's yeah. hopping around. Batgirl is, you know, busy. I guess either being killed by people in the church or sewing her mom's finger together. Yeah. Yeah, but but then she's in Nightwing as well, so maybe she was on the way from one to the other. Barbara. She gets around. I think everybody's just putting Batgirl back. Everybody's putting Batgirl in their issue because for some reason Batgirl's selling comics. Maybe she's maybe she's appearing so much that she's the one they're going to kill off. For some reason, right? Like she's just popping. <laughs> and everywhere. that's why they rehired Gail Simone. Like, yeah, sure, you can come back on the book. And now she's going to be writing Stephanie Brown or Cassandra Kane. No, I, she is popping up way too much, mm-hmm. I think. And you know, I love seeing Barbara, but I think she's the one character besides Batman that really does not have time to be doing this. Um, and, and I think, you know, we can all play this, like, get off the continuity train, and I think there's an interview we read earlier in, in 2012 where they said you just got to have the freedom that people may be in Japan one day and Africa the next, but I think this storyline needs to be tight, and I think the intention is to have it tight in time, and she right now, if she wasn't in the ring, uh, with the Joker in the the roller rink, then she was in that church. So I, I there's just no way that she would have done that. As for the number thing, that almost it, it really feels very uh, Oracle Birds of Prey esque, where he used to yeah, um, pop pop in and call her and everything, and they had a a good relationship over there um, before she knew who he was. I remember. Um, so th- it sort of reminds me of that. I wonder how he put her down. I guess he put her down in his context as Batgirl. But that really seems, it makes it seem like he's very far separate from like the main core of the Bat family, which is shocking given the fact that Batman is potentially, you know, I mean, Batman adopted him. So that's very random why Batgirl would be the person that he should call. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to connect this to necessarily pre-52, but I mean, ideally, when Tim was living with Bruce Wayne, he would know Batgirl and Barbara Gordon have some sort of relationship with her. I don't think that, like, it's kind of sketchy because we're, we're living in a situation now where Tim Drake was Robin and Batgirl was Barbara Gordon. That's never been done before, unless you want uh, except for the animated series. So it's kind of something you kind of have to imagine, which never really happened. But I would imagine that, you know, she would make herself available if any of the Robins needed help. Or then again, okay, then again, I actually, I'm thinking this out. Was she Batgirl when Tim was Robin? I mean, this is an honest question. She was paralyzed for three years and Tim was Robin. Who, who knows? God knows who, how long. Then, like, that, honestly, would they be able to form some relationship or wouldn't, or when she became Batgirl again, would they automatically set that back up? Or, but then again, Tim was forming the Teen Titans, so. Okay, well, before we get into too much of the timeline discussion. Again. yeah, again, for the gazillionth time on that, too. But uh, the thing... Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about is... we under, I understand that Jason Todd does not have his own series. His series is Red Hood and the Outlaws. Team Ty, uh, Tim Drake does not have his own series. Tim Drake is in Teen Titans, which, for the most part, is a good chunk of what... The, the, a good chunk of the book is Tim Drake. And these other characters are there, too, just like Red Hood and the Outlaws. 
But my question is, why is it necessary if this book is delving into Death of the Family, why is it necessary for both Red Hood and Teen Titans to have a story that's supposed to focus on one member of the team? Why is it necessary to have these other characters somehow play into the event as well? I don't think that's how, how the books came out to be. I mean, I think that Red Hood and the Outlaws and, and Teen Titans, respectively, were both written to be the Jason Todd and Tim Drake books. But they were sort of you know, a way to sort of like get to the other characters. I think people would be asking, where's Wonder Girl? Where's uh, Impulse? Where's Superboy? Where's Starfire? Where's, where's uh, Arsenal? No, 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 no. I'm not saying they can't appear. What I'm saying is, okay, so at the end of Red Hood and the Outlaws, Roy and Starfire go to Gotham City to help Jason. And they go to Gotham City. So now they're in the, the heat of things right there in ground zero for where everything's happening. Teen Titans. They go to help Tim Drake and in turn link up with Batgirl and now are searching for Tim Drake to help him while he's dealing with the Joker in Gotham City in the heat of things at ground zero for the event that's going on. And now even more so at the end of the issue with them all going up against these people who have been Jokerized, why is it necessary to do that? I mean, like, I'm not saying you can't have the characters in the book. I'm saying, why are you involving the characters in the storyline? The the story that's supposed to focus on this character. Batman is not sitting here saying to, you know, his allies, <clears throat> Hey, everybody, so you know, I know that two of you really have your own teams and... You guys do your own thing, so I'm not telling you to worry about yourself. I'm telling you to worry about your team. No, nobody said, hey, by the way, maybe you should take a break from working with your team for a while because the Joker's coming after you. He didn't say that. He said, you need to worry about yourself and just keep your heads up, okay? Nobody said, hey, you should bring your ragtag group of uh, superhero kids to Gotham City so that they can get into a situation where they're not going to be able to get out of because they're too inexperienced and they have no idea what they're dealing with. I mean, like, to me, it just doesn't make a lot of sense where these characters needed to be in Gotham City and now they are fighting Jokerized characters. I honestly don't think that's a big deal because they would be wondering where Robin is. I think that, like, uh, I really... No, no, but in the issue itself, they did say, well, he does do this thing where he just disappears for long periods of time sometimes, so it could be one of those situations. Uh, well, when you put it that way, that when, they, when they actually write in an excuse for them not to be involved, that, that, is, that is tetchy. But mainly, generally, I don't, I don't really care because it's, it's sort of like, like you know, going back to, Gary Bratch and Lonely Place to Die. You know, during the during the Teen Titans issues, the Teen Titans were wondering where Nightwing was. Even though Nightwing had quit the Teen Titans, they were still chasing after him, which honestly you argue was padding. Because the, the, the only place to die was a crossover between Batman and Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. So, they're, I think they're trying to go for that, not necessarily go for that idea, but have, kind of have the same thing. Um, I, I guess it just didn't work for you as well as, as well as it, not so much as well as it did for me, but I guess it bothered you more than it bothered me. I don't know, I guess... The part, probably the biggest reason why it bothers me is that, for whatever reason, time. this it's it's a, it's not a Tim Drake book, but it's the Tim Drake story, and I have to read all of this other excess stuff that has little to nothing to do with actually Tim Drake's story. How would you have? How would you have felt if um, 
they didn't do it in these books, but they actually had just like a mini series, Death of the Family. It was five issues, and it just focused on those characters. Do you think that would get at the heart of of sort of what you're looking for, and maybe be a more powerful story than jumping around in all of these books? The the best thing that I could think of is if we look back at Bruce Wayne, The Road Home, where there was just that group of one-shots that came out dealing with all of the characters that were affected by Bruce Wayne coming mm-hmm. back. That was probably a very that was probably the best idea of what they needed to do with a crossover where they were still self-contained. You didn't have to buy every single one of them, but they weren't necessarily part of the main series that focused on it. And then you could still have books related to specific characters like Jason Todd or Tim Drake and not have it have to be about the Teen Titans or the Outlaws. Like to me, I don't know. It's just this mentality of what everything that they're doing with the New 52 has to coexist with everything else in the New 52. Where the road home, you know, there were standalone issues. They focused on each character, and not all those characters had their own books. And if they did have, if they didn't have their own books, they there were still some issues that there were still some characters that got an issue because even if they didn't have their own series at the time. Because they were a, a, a thing. So, I mean, like, in my mind, I'm not saying that I would have wanted, you know, eight different one-shots to cover all of these, these this situation. But they could have also timed it well, better, too, where, you know, it doesn't necessarily interrupt the stories that are going on in the, in the normal series by having the story pop in in the middle of something. Like, it's, it's very evident in, we look back at, at the end of uh, Nightwing, where before the Zero issue, there was clearly stuff going on. They left some things open. They didn't cut. They didn't wrap everything up. Then we got that two issue storyline with um, DeFalco, who filled in for the two issues and the Zero issue, and then that kind of didn't really tie up anything. It, it led into uh, Death of the Family, but it didn't tie up everything that was left before. Now we're at Death of the Family, and it's like, okay, so it's happening. Batgirl, the issue before Death of the Family led into the the all the villains getting together, and now that's being put off for at least two issues while Death of the Family is going on, but God knows how many issues with Gail Simone not actually writing the, the issues after Death of the Family. So, I mean, like, I don't know. I just, I like the idea of those, those one-shots that were done back then, and I, that's probably the best way I could think of being it, it, it being done. Are you saying that separate to what's going on in Batman, though? As in, uh, Scott Snyder tells his Joker story in Batman, and then anyone that wants to tie into it can have the separate, uh, like, um, uh, standalone issue. Or are you saying have the whole thing take it all out of what's going on? No, I'm saying, like, you can keep the story in, in Batman, but, like, all of these other series that are tying into yeah, trying so to, that like, it doesn't interrupt their storyline. Yeah, they just yeah, need that. to do, like, one-shots. One-shots for everybody who wants to be involved, and it could be, you know, one issue, it could be two issues, or, I mean, you could be an oversized issue if it needs to be, but, like, some of this, everything we've seen so far has not needed to be in more than one issue. So, I mean, they could have cut it down, and it could have been in one issue for, I mean, the cat, the two issues that had Catwoman, they didn't need to be two issues. This, there's other stuff that's happening that doesn't need to happen. Uh, 
the the prelude that happened in Batgirl uh, 14 and 15, that stuff, again, it didn't need to be in two issues. I know 16 is also going to deal with it too, but and we'll have to see. But I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot of stuff that it's in these issues that doesn't need to be because they're focusing on all of this other stuff to make it so that their storylines aren't as affected by what's going on. And I'm thinking if it was just, hey, if you want to deal with it, that's great. Here's some one-shots. Then it's a better reason because then you'd have more of an opportunity for DC to make even more money by selling more books. And then the people who are... Because, I mean, the biggest thing is people get upset. DC always complains about how people get upset by crossovers because they feel like they have to read everything. So why even have crossovers in the main series? Why not just have, you know, start doing these things where if it's short crossovers where it's only like one or two issues and it's not a giant story, or if it is a giant story like this, why not just do a one-shot? Yeah, when you put it like that, it seems almost stupid that they're not doing that. I mean, it would work for everyone. Yeah. This is why you should be running DC. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> make everybody happy and make everyone the correct amount of money. <laughs> All right, so Teen Titans, number 15. I'm going to give a total of three out of five bad ranks. You know, nothing much happened. <laughs> and then I thought that uh, the stuff with Tim Drake was... I kind of agree now that, that I think about what Desmond was saying, that like the stuff with the Titans was kind of distracting, even though the book is called Teen Titans. This should have been more about Tim. So, based on that, uh, I, I liked it better than, than Red Hood and the Outlaws, so I'll give it three out of five better ranks. I was just uh, very uninterested throughout this issue, so I'll just give it two, two and a half out of five better ranks. You got all of the fanboys, though, in the issue, really loving um, Babs, and then <laughs> Wonder Girl just not liking any of it. Um, 3.5, I think it was midway for me, 3.5 out of five better ranks. All right, so that's going to give Teen Titans number 15 a total of three out of five batterings. All right, so let's move into our next book, Nightwing number 15. It's not about money. It's about sending a message. Nightwing number 15, Cleaning House, writer Kyle Higgins, pencils by Eddie Barrows. This issue begins with Jimmy the Clown uh, walking into an alley in Gotham City, which everyone knows is a great idea. Uh, after getting some heckling from his friends that he's a no-opening act in Haley Circus. He's being called by somebody in the shadows that, uh, oh, we, people say that we look alike, but there's hardly a resemblance. And then Jimmy starts to smile and then laugh, and then he falls over dead as the Joker shows up saying, oh, wait a second, now I see it. Blah! <laughs> so um, after a night of patrol uh, between Nightwing and Batgirl, uh, Nightwing gets a call from Sonya Branch saying uh, he's about to warn them to leave town, all, all his orders leave town, but Sonya Branch informs him that Jimmy is dead. So Dick Grayson runs back to the circus and sees that Jimmy's body is strung up, up high for everyone can see with a note saying nobody likes a knockoff. So while Dick uh, begins to investigate, and he also learns that Joker has uh, freed Raya from Blackgate Prison, he... We see that Raya wakes up in the middle of nowhere, some abandoned warehouse uh, where, where the Joker has some insidious plans for her. After hours of Nightwing canvassing around looking for the Joker, he can't find anything or, or on Raya and investigates Jimmy's body at the morgue. He takes a sample of his blood, finding jet fuel curiously, and then goes back to his house to sort of uh, take it easy for the next, next time he goes on patrol. He's, oh, I'm sorry, he goes over to uh, Sonya Ranch. And um, after she says to him, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, don't worry, they, they predictably make out. 
Uh, but <laughs> Dick actually can't get over the fact that she's the daughter of Tony Zuko, the guy who killed his parents, you see. Um, and by that time, his chemical analysis result brings him to client industries where he finds the source of the jet fuel. And at first, he sees a shadowy figure laughing and talking to him while he hears the Joker's voice. So he runs around, but he eventually learns that it's none other than Raya, doused with Joker toxin uh, and a, in a fake Nightwing shirt with two knives taped to her fists. So she's clearly out of her mind attacking him while the Joker's taught him, saying, calling him bat fake and saying, ha-ha, I made a, a Nightwing knockoff for you. Isn't that funny? So he flees and has six this... Uh, insane Raya onto him. Eventually, Raya, who stops laughing and her heart starts to give out, Nightwing realizes that her body is rejecting the toxin and she's beginning to die. Even though he brings out the antidote from one of his gauntlets and tries to uh, resuscitate her, she says that she's sorry for everything and passes away before he's able to revive her. Uh, He then sees uh, a note written on her stomach, rips it open, and... um, says in either blood or ketchup, what a surprise part what a surprise party where Amusement Mile, hosted by Haley Circus. Next issue, the most horrific show on earth. So uh I thought this was a really good issue. <laughs> but this is one of the better having issues we've read ever, I think. Uh and partly because Eddie Barris is back. And partly also because I think that this instance is one of the very rare cases in this storyline of the Joker actually doing what he set out to do in Batman. You know, by, you know, attacking the, yes, for reals, attacking the, the supporting cast, torturing them. And I'm going I'm to I'm start off this question, but I'm going to start off the discussion in that what I mean by that is if you compare and contrast to what he's been doing with Robin and Batgirl and uh, Jason and Tim, you know, he, he, he captured Barbara's mom and threatened her and cut off her finger, and he attacked Jim Gordon and kidnapped Alfred. He attacked Robin, and he attacked the girl that... Jason was schmoozing with and kidnapped, kidnapped Robin. Here, and this is, this is what I've been saying for months now, he just shows up and just kills Jimmy, kills Raya, you know, has to have them, you know, six his Joker talks on them, has them attack Nightwing, and it's not even over with. He, atta- he invites Nightwing into a, what's sure to be a death trap. This is what I, I, I figured the Joker to be doing ever since he said to Batman, you know, you're, you're distracted by all these freaks and sidekicks that you pal around, pal around with. I'm your jester. I'm the, I'm the only one that matters to you in your, in your courtroom, and I want to show you how. You're never going to see what's going to come. This is, this is him actually uh, making good on that vow. This is him actually being threatening. And for him to see Nightwing as a bat fake and basically, basically seeing him as a joke and mocking him by dressing up, um, by, by saying to, on Jimmy's body, nobody likes a knockoff, and saying that he made a knockoff of Nightwing with Raya, I, I think he's hitting Nightwing on a lot of personal levels and really hitting him where, that's hurt, where it hurts. What do you guys think on how the Joker attacked Nightwing and in this issue, and how it compares to how he attacked the other members of the Bat Family in other issues? You you hit the nail right on the head. Um, you know, I think of all the books so far, this has finally come through and is actually giving us what Joker has said he was going to do because he kept telling Batman, um, you know, you forgot about me, that kind of thing, and and these other characters are bringing you down. But you know, if there's if Batgirl is bringing Batman down, then why does he why does he propose to her? Like I still don't understand that. But here we have it, and I just love the whole sort of the the knight being the king and having his court and we really see that here we we see joker calling nightwing bat fake um continually so this sort of makes me think that um 
Batman R.I.P. is still in continuity because Dick was Batman at one time. But he's basically destroying Nightwing's court that he would have had if he were the King of Gotham when he was Batman. He got, he killed his jester, which was Jimmy. He got rid of Raya, which would have been like Nightwing or if we could have, I mean, the princess sort of thing. And now he's going to be attacking his actual kingdom, which is Haley Circus. And I really love that motif, just bringing down his kingdom. But I absolutely think that this has really gotten to the heart of what Joker said he was going to do and what Joker should be doing. And this makes, like, I think this is the best portrayal of Joker that we've we've seen thus far. I agree. My thing is, I have to, I have to wonder, though, like, if this comes out that the Joker really doesn't know their identities and he really doesn't know... There is absolutely no explanation whatsoever as to why he's picking these people in Nightwing. Because there's... What's the... I mean, they all have a link to the circus, which is fine, but why is it so important for Nightwing to have this link to the circus if the Joker doesn't know? So, like, to me, you know... The, the, the comments about that Batgirl makes at the beginning of the issue really pulls in and, and really makes you wonder, you know, she says, well, if she really doesn't know, if, if the Joker really doesn't know our, our identities, like Bruce says, then why is it that, you know, he broke Raya out of jail? Because reality is, why would she have anything to do with it? Now, at the other hand, I mean, obviously, they all have to do with the circus, so maybe, I don't know, I don't, I don't even know how I could, make this make any sense whatsoever besides it's just just saying it doesn't make sense because it's the Joker. Um, now, if now Sonya Branch, on the other hand, was a character that the Joker went after, that would be, to me, more of a sign that he knows who, you know, Nightwing is just because he's currently linked to her. Um, but it's, I don't know, understand the circus thing. The one thing I did have to say... I thought it was great, and I did think it, it, you know, it nailed it right on the head as far as what they needed to do and what they, what we should be seeing in these other issues. The, the, the interesting thing is, you know, how many issues was it that we kept seeing Dick talk to Jimmy, and you know, we keep seeing Jimmy pop up here, there, everywhere, and I really have to wonder if, like, the whole reason we saw him popping up as many times as we did was just so that he felt more defined as a character so that when they killed him it was like holy crap that person we've seen multiple times in the series is now dead and like that's not necessarily a bad thing but then it has to it almost makes me weary of any other characters that we unnecessarily are are you know focusing on in every single issue as to are we just building these characters up so we can kill them um because that's what it seems well i think though i mean i don't know if Kyle Higgins, I'd always intended for him to die, but I think it really works really well because he was he was introduced a while back, just sort of established the Haley Circus, sort of established the Haley Circus supporting cast, and you know he had his own. He, we were, he was introducing his own issue about him. I don't think necessarily he was introduced to kind of build up, uh, you know, the Joker's threat, but I think he was a necessary sacrificial lamb because there is a there is a remaining supporting cast like Raya, like the little girl whose name I don't remember, like Jimmy. So, I mean, I don't necessarily think that he was sort of made just so he could die. Um, I, I, I agree that, like, you know, it's one of those things in fiction where you're building up a character to die, but I think the way it was done was, I, if, if that's the case, I, I didn't figure it at all. And it's not so much that, you know, oh, no, Jimmy died, what a, what a tragedy, but like it's like, okay, the Joker's not playing around. He's playing for keeps. That's a sign that, you know, 
he's not playing around just to just to maintain the status quo like he is in the other books. You know, like if he's going, if he really does not like Nightwing and the others, then that's what he's going to do. He's not going to like you know just just mess around and just play with them and whatever. Like I I, I believe that he tried to kill Gordon and Batman. And who knows what he's going to do to Alfred. He should have that same level of threat in the other books. And until now, I don't think he has. But with Nightwing, he's definitely shown to be. <laughs> I hesitate to do this. But... <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, oh, great. We're, we're going to talk about Sonya Branch and Dick's scene in this time. Oh, because... we need to, I think. Well, really... Uh, and, and... Okay, so coming from Stella, it comes across as that is something really, really <laughs> need to talk No, about. no, no. I thought it was comically bad. Okay. Oh, I agree. I agree. Well, I'm just saying, coming <laughs> from your mouth, yeah, yeah. it's definitely something that needs to be said. Well, and how bad it is. Let, let, let's let's set it up for a bit of context, because Sonya Branch was introduced like like in Scott Snyder's storyline like like a, a while before the New Foods Two had begun, but it was the last storyline. Really, I mean, she was introduced, and initially, when and that was when Dick was Batman. I don't believe, I don't remember there was any romantic tension when she was first introduced between her and Dick Grayson. I think that really started with Kyle Higgins, and you know there is a tendency because Dick Grayson is such a lovable guy in the DC universe that women are going to fall for him. And I understand that as a character trait. I do. We we have been talking for a while about how kind of clumsy he's been set up. Like Sonya's just kind of almost forcing forcing herself onto Dick Grayson and having contrived reasons for them to meet. Like you know, oh let's have a dinner date to talk about business, of course. <laughs> and um, I. It's not so much Dick's in on it because Dick feels kind of hesitant towards it, and he's also I like the I really like the fact that Dick Grayson's uneasy about her because her father killed his parents because I don't think Dick Grayson's really shown to have as much pain over his parents' death uh, as Nightwing as uh, as he does here, which is interesting. But in this scene, I don't know. I mean, I kind of want to hate it more than I do. I still think it's rather ridiculous because I don't I don't know why why Sonya would have I don't. I don't feel like we're given enough reason why Sonya Branch would be attracted to him, despite the fact that you know I guess he's attractive physically. But I, I guess it's pretty obvious how we how we come down on this. Uh, Joe, what do you think about this? What, what were you thinking when you read this scene? I, I think there was some in Scott Snyder's scene. I think she's originally introduced as like, oh, is, is she the person behind this? And then you know he found out more and more that it was James Gordon. Um, and, you know, there was Dick questioning whether she had ulterior motives or not, and then we found out that she genuinely was just trying to live life without her, um, get out from under a dad's shadow and stuff. Um, and I think there was some, I think it's definitely been ramped up by Carl Higgins. It, it definitely does seem kind of, I don't know, it just seems kind of childish, and it's always like one of them wants it and then the other one doesn't, and then they switch, and then it's like, Dick's always having these confused feelings, and he's like, "Oh yeah, maybe she likes me." And then as soon as she sort of makes a movie, he's a bit like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! This is, you know, she, her dad killed my parents and stuff." And then, and then he'll forget it, and then she'll do say something again, or and they'll be like, "Oh, okay then, maybe." And then she'll be like, "Oh no, seriously, I just want to talk about business." And he's like, "Oh, okay." My my thing my thing is this, okay. I don't think that Higgins has really done a great job of character, like getting the characterization of. Sonya Branch down, because <clears throat> there's so many situations where she just she just comes across as she's extremely wishy-washy, where like she's clearly making advances on him in some situations, and other situations she's like she's basically no, I'm all about business, 
I, I don't want anything to do with your personal life. I don't want to know anything about your personal life. I don't want you to know anything about my personal life. And in other situations, she's like trying to, oh, well, why don't you come over to my apartment? Or how about we go have dinner? And, you know, it's the problem is the characterization of this character is just ab- absolutely not. It's it's not there's there there is none. It's it's just not there. There you know it's one way one 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 issue and then the next issue it's like wait a second. The best example I can think of is there was that issue that had um her assistant make some kind of oh, comment yeah. about uh oh so you and Dick Grayson and she was like no of course not and like okay so at the time it came across as oh she doesn't want her assistant to know and maybe that's why she's saying that but like. The, the characterization at the time was basically her snuffing it off as no way. That's not even remotely possible. Like, I'm, not, I'm going above and beyond what I would need to say to say, you know, if I was trying to hide it, I'm going above and beyond to just basically say that's not even remotely possible. And the thing is, then it was like when I read that, I was just like, oh, okay, so she really doesn't want anything to do with him. And it really is maybe Dick Grayson just thinking it is more, is something more than it really is. Which is which is fine, but the problem is, in this one, it's oh, Dick, why don't you come over to my apartment and we can t- I can get these two signatures. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if she she clearly states she's the head of a financial institution, she's not going to be looking to a client and getting together with a client specifically to get a signature. She would have one of her many many employees go to him or one of his employees and say this needs to be done. They would not be meeting up at all. That's not how the real world works. So for her to say, oh, why don't you come over to my apartment to to so I can get these two signatures. And then when he shows up, she's she's wearing an outfit that is completely opposite of everything that she's worn in every other occasion they've met, where she's always like in a serious business suit or business attire. And now she's wearing like a, a shirt that, you know, shows a lot more skin than we pretty much have ever seen with this character before. And then, like, we get this, like, weird, sweet, innocent kiss, and it's just, like, completely out of place because I'm looking at this and thinking, is this two nine-year-olds? What What is going on here? And then, all of a sudden, this giant flashback of, oh, my Tony Zuko killed my parents <laughs> as he's in the, in, the mi- in the middle of her kissing him, and it's just like, yeah. really? What You already determined over the past... 14 issues of your series, plus the issues that you were Batman in Detective Comics, that she's has she's not a bad person. Every time you think she's a bad person, or she could be doing something bad, you've ended up proving yourself wrong, and, and believing the fact that she is not her father, and she is her own person, but now you're going to sit here and be like, Oh, Tony Zuko killed my parents. No, I can't kiss you. It's so horrible, because your, your father killed my parents. I wonder if... What? Eddie, what? <laughs> I wonder if Eddie Barrios thought it was like childish and stupid as well, and that's why he gave Dick that little stupid teen chin beard going on. Well, I mean, I'll be honest. I can see on one hand, I, clearly she likes him, no matter what's going on before. I mean, like I think especially in the last three issues or so, she's been shown to be rather flirty with him. Like whether she even realizes it or not, just the way that she's written, like this whole "come to my apartment and we'll talk about." Your feelings and your and sign this, please. Like, I mean, we all know what that is. But like, also, I think that like I can understand Dick's frustration because you know, kissing the guy, ki- the guy, kissing somebody <laughs> who, who, whose parents. The reason why he doesn't, he's Nightwing, 
is because of her father. I can understand that there's a part of him that, that is going to be really hard to get past. So I can, it's not this is totally unacceptable, but. Yeah, but don't you think he would have gotten past it before it led to the actual kiss? Like, why is he agreeing to meet her? And why is he thinking in his brain when she calls him talking about, uh, let's go out to dinner so we can discuss business? Why is he thinking in his brain, oh, is this something more than business? Is this a date? What was I, what was I saying? And like him questioning whether or not this is actually something more than it is if he's not over oh, yeah, no, What I was going to say is not so much the fact that this is happening. I think this is being rushed and it's kind of happening a bit clumsily. It's not so much what's going on and his feelings, his feelings about her and her father and her feelings about him. It's just that I think Higgins doesn't really write it as natural as, as, as it probably should be. I mean, um, I think the moment we saw her in this title, at least, not not really in Snyder's run, but in this title, we thought, okay, love interest, just like we do with Mariah. But I think in this, I think Higgins, I like Higgins, I do, but I think that he kind of doesn't, I think that he doesn't really write romance all that subtly, which I, I kind of hate to say because I, I like the writer, but with, with Dick Grayson, he's not... You have to, you have to be able yeah, to... Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, romance is either, it either... Uh, occurs naturally and subtly, or it's just automatically bad. That's just the, the nature of it in fiction. And I mean, with Dick Grayson is like the Tony Stark of <laughs> the DC universe, uh, just because like true. the females uh, really do fawn over him. Well, I I feel like he pre fifty two. I think he was really portrayed as like women in and out of his bed, and then you know we 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 see. Raya in what issue one? I feel like it was issue one with the plane thing. No, it was but, issue two. <laughs> oh, okay. So it, was, it wasn't as bad as Catwoman. But I remember way back when, when we first started talking about um, Dick and Sonya, and I said, Don't you think he would have a problem with her father? And I remember Dustin in his low voice saying, No, he's over that. And here we are bringing it up again. Clearly, he's not over that. But it was just. It was such a comical scene, just that whole kiss and then that, that whole back page just showing all of these flashbacks. And I thought, oh, what is going on? But this entire romance really does seem like two awkward teenagers where they can't read the signs that one likes the other. And they're confused and, and fuddling about and everything. And it's just not, I think it's not the suave Dick Grayson that we're used to. And it's just not a well-done romance Um <laughs> at all. I don't know if Raya would have been considered better, but I mean, I feel like we've been developing Sonya and Dick for a little while and you think it'd be in some good place, but it hasn't hasn't been. I would argue that uh, in terms of Dick's uh, skills with the ladies, it's not so much that he's like a pimp or Tony Stark kind of character, but it is a factor of the character that like ever since he grew up, uh, ever since Starfire, really, women have liked him. Which I don't mind. It's, it, it all depends because I think I do think that like when he's written to be sort of like a playboy, it's kind of out of character. And I, in this instance, I don't I don't think it's out of character. But I again I'm sort of repeating myself that like the speed in which Sonia and him kind of come together is really is, is too fast to be kind of done believably. And I think that I think that happens. I think Higgins kind of pulled the trigger on that quickly just because he assumes that's how the character is, and I would disagree. Do you really think it's been too fast? Yeah, I do, I do, because, like, I think that, like, well, maybe not so much too fast, but, like, they've not been shown to be that, it's, I don't know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you know, oh, come to dinner so we can discuss business. Is this a date? Like, I, I, there needs to be sort of signs before you start to think that. 
don't know. I think it's not so much been fast, but maybe it's kind of been hand, not handled as well as it should have been, essentially. All right, so Nightwing number 15, I'm going to give a total of four out of five betterings. Uh, despite the, the stupid kiss, I really, anything that I, I didn't mind so much. Eddie Burrows always does excellent work. Kyle Higgins is back doing great work as well. I love the, for, for once, I thought the Joker story plussed the issue. This is a great issue of Nightwing, I think. Uh, 4.5 out of 5 betterings. I agree that it was excellent. Um, I've always said that I thought Eddie Barrows was a bit too gritty of an artist for Nightwing, but it works perfectly in this issue, so 4 out of 5 betterings for me. Uh, and people, if you get anything out of it, it, it's really that this is the first time that we've seen Joker actually stick to his word and his M.O. follow what we're sort of used to. Uh, four out of five batterings. All right, so Nightwing number 15 gets a total of four out of five batterings. Let's move into our last book, Batman Incorporated number six. I'm no executioner. Your compassion is a weakness your enemies will not share. That's why it's so important. Batman Incorporated number six, written by Grant Morrison with art by Chris Burnham and Andres Guinaldo. The issue opens up with Bruce racing to the homeless shelter, which blew up at the end of the last issue with Batman Inc. members inside. Batman, alongside ten robots, enter the building where Talia starts talking to him and begins the Zen parable of the goat herd. Batman isn't in the mood for playing games and asks after the hostages. Talia doesn't answer him, but does say that the Batman Inc. soldiers are waiting at the top of the building where we see Halo and Looker badly injured, freight train impaled through the stomach and Squire not breathing. Batman reaches the foot of the stairwell and looks up to see armed guards on every floor. They open fire, but in the sequence that puts the raid to shame, Batman fights his way to the top. We cut to the Batcave, where the Robins are arguing, but Alfred enters with a vicious kitten for Damien, and Alfred the cat is born. We cut back to Batman in a room full of mannequins hooked up to explosives before he enters another room, where he is faced by three cups of tea. The door behind him closes and gas starts to seep into the room, but Batman realises that the three cups are poisoned, so he backtracks, kicking down the door he just came through at which point the mannequins start to explode, so he has to dive out of the window, where he's ambushed by Talia's man-bat army. But the robots distract them long enough for Batman to clamber onto the floor above, where he easily takes down the remaining guards. He then enters another room, where Talia appears to be waiting for him. It is at once revealed that this is just a dummy, but Talia continues to explain how, by introducing a new power source, it will destroy the US economy, and Batman must decide who to save, his city or his son. We cut back to the wreckage, where Knight manages to revive Squire, but Batman gets taken out by one of Talia's huge Batman-esque bodyguards. On the stairs up to the wreckage, Batman runs into the hostages, all tied together by the neck, and to a huge boulder, which another one of the Bat bodyguards throws down the stairwell, taking the victims with it, whilst also bringing the ceiling down on Batman. Back in the wreckage, Knight gets lifted up by the neck and one of the, by one of the bodyguards, and his neck gets broken. Squire shoots him in the eye with her slingshot, <laughs> and Batman takes him down, but the Bat bodyguard gets the better of Batman and throws him off the roof, to be continued. I was kind of wondering, particularly of Stella, because I think she's read less Batman Inc. than the rest of us, were people emotionally affected by the, en- the events of this issue? particularly the scene at the end on the rooftop. I was. Uh, we've been following, uh, especially, particularly Knight and Squire, since, gosh, for year, way before 52, like, like way before Batman Incorporated, honestly, since the Black Club. I've always liked the characters. They had their miniseries. 
And I think out of all the Batman Incorporated uh, characters introduced, they're the ones with the most emotional investment because they had their miniseries. I think that uh, Beryl and Sarah are really good characters. And it was, it was, it was, it was, it was an emotional, you know, cliffhanger to see that what happened to them in the last issue. And then this issue, like, oh, they didn't get out. They're really in trouble. They got caught. Batwing's involved. So that there's, I like the fact that he's, his armor actually held up, which is kind of cool. I, I like that touch and seeing, Night so concerned for Squire. Then at the end, uh, seeing Barrel just go nuts, you know, just 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 sad and angry. I really, I I was sucked in, and I legitimately was because I think the Batman Incorporated characters. It's a, it isn't. It's easy not to care about them. I really do think that. Like no one cared when the Russian guy died because that was the first time we saw him. Even with Batwing, I'm not sure uh, if he would earn this much. But Night and Squire, we've God, it's like since 2007, maybe maybe even 2006. Since they've been around, maybe not 2006, but like they've been around for a, for a few years now. So I think that like this, this uh, the ending of this issue earned the emotion that it was going for. I really do, and I thought that like Burnham killed it on the art, and just I was feeling it. That, that image of a uh, uh, barrel, you know, doing using the the slingshot, and uh, her saying "bastard" or "bastard," I suppose. I I was like, no, not night. And like just seeing his like you know his really cartoony looking broken neck, it's like, oh damn, he's he's gone. So. I, I'm sucked in. I want to see what happens next. I thought it was a great issue. I mean, we all thought that pretty much based off of the, the ending of the last issue with the bomb being present and uh, going off when they were all there, that they were pretty probably close to being dead. Now, the reality is, besides Batman Incorporated, really, what other series are any of these characters popping up in besides Batwing? A lot of these characters could just die, and really, who's going to be the, who's going to, who's really going to care? Night and Squire has been a character that, you know, came about because they were in the Club of Heroes, um, which was in a Batman story that Grant Morrison was doing. Uh, it evolved into that miniseries that Paul Cornell did, and they've been in Batman Incorporated, and, you know, they've popped up in Batman and Robin and stuff like that. Um, but most of it all has to do with the fact that it was a Grant Morrison thing. So, realistically, I, I, I did not see them dying but at the same time, it's one of those things where I can't see very many people being, you know, very many comic writers being really pissed at Grant Morrison for killing them off. So, I mean, this is not the same situation as what I was saying with uh, Jimmy and Nightwing, where, you know, I don't feel as if this character was built up to be killed, because I don't think that was the case at all. I think it was just this character was killed... And it was built up very well, but it, he was killed to have an emotional impact. And I felt that emotional impact compared to, you know, Jimmy being killed in Nightwing. So I think um, overall, I think they did a great job of, you know, I like the, I actually like the, the trading and back and forth between Talia and Batman throughout the entire thing as almost as if Talia is this omnipresent voice, which she's probably either hacked into his comlink or I keep, well I'm sure that's the case but it just comes across as he's constantly moving she's nowhere to be found she's just basically like this omnipresent thing that's always around and knows exactly what he's doing but he doesn't have any idea where she's at so I thought that was kind of cool too I completely agree I thought even though I've really only seen Squire in uh, in the Batgirl team up that she had so that was really uh, besides, you know, the reading that I've done here, that's really where I've only seen her. Oh, yeah, she wasn't an issue. Yeah, that it was <laughs> it was emotionally draining almost reading these pages. And it's really amazing 
how much you slow down in reading because it's all about the art here because very little is being said. It's all about the actions and the emotions that you're seeing on their faces. And it really started for me uh, with Knight just giving CPR uh, to Little Squire and just like, I mean, him like wasting away and basically like almost wishing he were dead if, if only he could bring her back to life. And then her... Um, yeah, you've got the slingshot action, and then you have her, just like this little girl, picking up this huge pile of rubble and smacking the, on, or attempting to smack it on that guy's back, at yeah. least. Um, seeing, was it Batman, or was it, yeah, but, no, who was it that he was, like, swinging around by his, oh, it was, was Knight. Yeah, swinging him around and hitting Batwing, it was just like... Oh, it was gut-wrenching. It was heart-wrenching. Um, so even though I haven't had as much of a connection with these characters, um, I think that that just speaks volumes with how well that this was drawn um, and, and really plotted because there aren't many words, but it's all about the emotions that are going on and, and everything that you see really get drawn in. Yeah, I, I have to say, I don't fully understand Talia's plot Um because she was going on about alternate fuels, and then for some reason the children will rise up. I can just about understand the economy falling apart, but I don't see where Damien comes into it. Um, but I'm, I mean, do any of you really understand that, or are you just going with it at the moment? Uh, I don't pretend to understand these plots, but I tend to go with it when it's, when it's easily understandable. I, yeah, I, I don't understand the plot, but I understand... Batman's situation, however he has to get to it, because it's, I, I think it works especially well following on from the last issue, um, where we see the possible future, and then you know having things like the cat coming into it and all clues towards what could possibly happen worked well, and I, I, as soon as he left that room with Talia, I thought that the emotion really ramped up. I mean, even seeing those civilians... And knowing that Batman couldn't do anything to save them. I mean, that was a brutal way to go. And then having that, all that emotional, just, it kept building and building, I felt, where, you know, like Stella was saying with Knight and Squire. So I thought that was really good. Um, but then Stella also mentioned the art. So how do you feel about the artist change in the middle of the issue? And, uh, Particularly without any notice other than in the issue. I, I really have to wonder if, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, obviously, I'm sure Chris Burnham is not going to turn into one of these guys who needs a fill-in artist every issue or something like that. But at the same time, I really have to wonder what the reason behind this was. Because if we think about this, um, I... I, I I really, I, I really just have to wonder what was the purpose for this. He had multiple months to get ahead of schedule went before the series was even announced. He knew he was going to be on this series back in October of 2011. Okay, when they, when they, when they were, they were first ta- talking about when Batman Incorporated was actually going to come back, and they had that one shot that came out in December, and then it was, oh well, Batman Incorporated is actually going to be part of this new wave in May. So he had almost a good eight months before the series even came out where he knew he was going to be doing the art. Was he only, was he only working on Batman Incorporated? Probably not. He was probably doing some other stuff. That's not really relevant to what I'm trying to say though. My point is may comes, 
that was that that was Batman Incorporated uh, number one May of 2012, and here we are December of 2012. They had that delay of that that uh, third issue because of the shootings that were happening in Colorado. They delayed that issue for an entire month. They had the zero issue as well. How in the world could you fall behind again if you had uh, an extra month on top of what you already had and then you had the zero issue, which I understand, okay, the zero issue might have been something where, you know, it was thrown in and they had to do it very quickly because of it. But even so, he had a month that he should have been ahead. So, I mean, like, I just don't understand the, uh, you know, why this book would fall behind and why they would need an artist, you know, a fill-in artist in the middle of it, but I don't know. I just, you know it was only for a couple of pages, and, like, the most important stuff was drawn by him. I'm like, uh, I can't get too upset of it. Uh, well, I thought, Dustin, you brought up a good point, but, I mean, I don't pretend to know how how it works. I mean, I know you get a few months ahead, whether Grant Morrison even wrote them that far ahead, though. Um, yeah. Because I know he's got a lot on his plate, and you know he might not be thinking that far ahead. I don't know how soon he wrote them. I just think it's a shame, because I, Grant, I think Chris Byrne is probably my favourite artist in comics at the moment, and uh, but not only that, I mean, I would probably even rather to have the whole issue done by one person just because I prefer consistency, almost. And it's not like they even look the same, the art styles. So uh, I just thought it was a shame, really. Yeah, I, I've never liked Andreas Canaldo ever since Gotham City Sirens. And when he was on Nightwing, I was like, I was kind of trudging through that. It's just not. It's just this style, this, that kind of style is just not really. It feels, it feels too. I don't know. It, it doesn't feel too too. I, I just well, don't care for it. Well, yeah, I'd say that. I think he's got better, but I feel that Grant Morrison. I'm used to him having these really spectacular, really high end artists, and I know that Chris Burnham wasn't particularly when he started, but I think he's made him one. But, you know, we've seen him with people like Frank Quietly and J.H. Williams and Tony Daniel. So to have someone like that who is, you know, relatively a no-name and whose style isn't particularly uh, inventive or it's, it's nothing truly original about it, it seems odd to have that. It really does seem like I don't think Grant Morrison would have had any uh, choice in this, it feels like. Is that worthy of the title? Yes, yeah. All right, Batman Incorporated number six. I'm going to give a total of four and a half out of five batteries. Batman Incorporated, so it gets the 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 minimum worst grade you can possibly get, four point five out of five batteries. The minimum worst grade. Andres Grinaldo, he's he's dragging it down. He's doing his best, but I'm sorry, Chris Burnham comes out fighting, so it's got to be a five. <laughs> Alfred, people, Alfred, Bat Cow, <laughs> lovers of animals, PETA unite. Um, <laughs> I definitely give this four out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Batman Incorporated number six a total of four and a half out of five batterings. That is all of our books. Let's go over to John with Bat Books for Beginners.
Hi, and welcome to another episode of Bat Books for Beginners. I am once again your host, John, and this week we are reviewing Nightwing Huntress. This was written by Devin Grayson, who wrote a few issues of Teen Titans and also wrote Nightwing, and she's probably most famous for having Nightwing raped by Tarantula, a storyline that caused a lot of controversy at the time. It features art by Greg Lan and Bill Sarwensky. Greg Lan worked on Nightwing and has done a lot on X-Men, whilst Bill Skowinski has worked on Gotham Central Police Department, Batman Odyssey and also various X-Men comics. It was released between May 1998 and August 1998, and the issues reached 53, 53, 60, and 59 respectively in the comic pre-orders charts. It's never been released as a trade paperback, and is only available as a four-issue miniseries. However, it can be found very, very cheaply on sites like eBay and Amazon, generally averaging around sort of five pounds or three to four dollars. So, is it going to be any good or is this going to leave me cold? Let's find out as we delve into Nightwing Huntress. You really know how to show a girl a good time, Q. When are we going out on a real date? Oh, trying to concentrate. I'm not even in the Justice League anymore. You're lucky to have me along. Hardly. You are drawn to my eccentric charm. We open with someone beating a woman to death. The mysterious figure panics and wipes their fingerprints off everything. We then cut to a man called Frankie who is in a warehouse with a woman and a man named Pascal. Frankie is told that he isn't supposed to be there as a woman was killed in his room. Nightwing, it transpires, is listening to this with interest. It then moves to Harvey Bullock, who is talking to a cop about the death of the woman, and that he hopes Frankie is close by, who is the main suspect. It is then revealed that Huntress is listening to this conversation. Frankie and his friends are being chased by the police through town. He says that Malfatti won't let him go and to stop the car. Frankie is arrested by the police and taken away, which is watched from the rooftops once again by Huntress, where she is joined by Nightwing. Helena reacts badly to Nightwing's arrival, telling him she doesn't need help or babysitting. However, Dick explains that Frankie isn't guilty of killing the woman, but Huntress says that it doesn't matter as he is part of the Mafia and should go down anyway. So they head over to Frankie's hotel room to search for evidence. We then move to the police station where Harvey is approached by a Lieutenant Ellison who is looking for his partner. It transpires that the murdered call girl was in fact Ellison's partner. Ellison explains that his partner Caitlin was obsessed with Frankie and that she was on an unofficial sting to try and catch him. Meanwhile, Nightwing and Huntress pay a visit to Pascal to discover what he knows about events. Pascal explains that the hotel room was a cover for Frankie, who was getting a shipment for Malfatti, who was mentioned earlier, and it transpired is the head of a gang. He planned to mess it up and then offer to resign for the mistake, allowing him to live happily with a girl that he's fallen in love with. 
We then cut to the cop that Harvey was talking to earlier, who is told that the woman killed was a cop. He, the cop, Mason, panics and runs, and he heads to the evidence room where he is met by Huntress. Mason says he fears a revenge attack and that Helena should help him. Nightwing talks to some prostitutes and it transpires that it was one of, nearly one of them who was killed, but she was paid off by Caitlin not to go. Caitlin and transpires then entered the hotel with a cop. Meanwhile, Huntress returns to see Pascal and believes that he committed the crime, which Malfatti, who arrived just before Huntress, agrees with, telling Pascal that he should turn himself in. Ellison is unconvinced by Pascal and heads to the locker room, where Mason is. Elson asks Mason's view on the crime, and we see him make a mistake, mentioning a stolen pillow, to which Ellison says that he has a very good memory. We then cut to Ellison on top of Gotham Police Department HQ, using the bat signal to get Nightwing's attention. It then moves to Ellison holding the missing pillowcase, which he found in Mason's locker. Meanwhile, Nightwing and Huntress continue the hunt for Frankie and his missing girlfriend. It then moves to Mason in a cop car pursuing a taxi with Pascal in it. Mason keeps talking about how he didn't know that she was a cop, that he killed her as he was lonely, and he had tried to bust her and wanted a bribe to let her go. He snaps and threatens the cop. Meanwhile, it transpires that Malfatti has taken Frankie to Greenwood to persuade him not to leave the gang. Frankie and Moira, his girlfriend, talk things over and Frankie tells her that Malfatti plans to kill them both. So he shoots her. He then walks out where he is confronted by Mason. Nightwing and Huntress arrive and Dick heads to deal with Malfatti, leaving Helena to try and save Frankie. Helena intervenes, taking them both down and stopping Pascal from shooting Frankie. And the series ends with Helena earning Dick's trust. It's been a while. I've changed some since we met last, but you haven't changed. All these years you've been building your empire with thievery and murder. But it ends tonight. So that was Nightwing and Huntress. I'm going to start with the good stuff first. I thought the art was fantastic. It's well planned and the action is really easy to follow. There is no over-the-top style and the women are portrayed really, really well. There's very little cheesecake. And everyone is well proportioned and actually looks human. And there are plenty of unique characters within this, each with their own different look and style, which I thought was really, really well done and probably is one of the benefits of having two artists on the panel. They can give that little bit more attention to detail. I thought Gotham itself was very well drawn as well. And it was nice to see a light, airy upside of the city, whereas in a lot of Batman comics we're used to seeing the much darker and more depressing side of it, with sort of grim surroundings and a very gothic feel to it. I thought it was a very interesting idea to see a cop trying to frame a gangster. And it's not something really I've encountered before, and... I think is quite unique and an interesting way to do it. I thought it was very interesting, but the problem is that it falls down really, really quickly. It would have been much more interesting 
to see these characters and have them with different motives, with different possible alibis, so that it kept you guessing the entire way through, which is what the first issue did. I did wonder whether it was potentially Frankie who had done it, or whether it was the cop that we were introduced to. And that would have been nice to have been sustained all the way through, right up until a final reveal. But it becomes blatantly obvious, as I said, who the hell it is. It was an incredibly lacklustre ending. I didn't really feel that engaged or that excited by its ending. And frankly, I was just glad that it was over. I thought it didn't really make sense to me the the way that it finished. Fair enough, I could understand the cop's motive, but the ending just seemed a bit ridiculous and contrived. It basically, as I said in the story, devolved into these three having a thing and Frankie shooting more for what I can ascertain is no particularly good reason. It would have made much more sense if he'd shot her and then shot himself. But he didn't do that and I kind of wondered why he shot her then walked out saying, oh, I've killed her, I've killed her. When it was quite clear that his intention was to try and kill both of them so that they could be together. It just seemed really, really boring, I suppose is the best way to describe it. The Nightwing and Huntress love story as well. Uh, I didn't include this in the actual description of the storyline because it just felt really unnecessary. It really didn't add anything to the storyline. And I don't really understand what was going on with them, why they were attracted to each other, nor did, frankly, I care that much either. Dick spent most of his time going, oh, I don't do one-night stands, and then proceeded to have a one-night stand with Helena, which just seemed, frankly, ridiculous and completely out of character. And, I mean, that has always been one of the things levelled at Devon Grayson in that she essentially didn't really know how to write Nightwing and it was such a departure from the character that it was ridiculous and I think that's an accusation that to be honest would be fair to make here Dick doesn't feel like the Dick Grayson that we know he doesn't feel like Nightwing throughout the entire story however there is some good characterization, and I think, really, she furthers Helena as a character. I kind of felt much more attached to her throughout the story, and I think it perhaps would have been nicer if this had just been a Huntress story. We could have seen her further her character and try to do things Batman's way to try and get into the crowd. But I thought that Helena generally was probably the better written of the characters, out of the two of them. So, overall, I'm going to give this... Three and a half out of five Batarangs. I do recommend you pick it up, although I don't think, to be honest, it is essential reading. It is, however, very, very good in places. So, that was Nightwing and Huntress. Next episode, we will be looking at Birds of Prey, Old Friends, New Enemies. And after that, we start Batman Cataclysm and really begin our descent into the massive storyline that is No Man's Land. So I am very much looking forward to that. So as always, if you have any comments, suggestions or want to give me your feedback on the comic itself, do feel free to leave a comment in the section below this podcast 
or below the main comic podcast and I will try and get back to you as soon as possible. I do always appreciate feedback and comments. So I've been your host John, thanks very much for listening and I'll hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. See you next time. Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you are checking out the next set of books for the next episode, as well as the feed for Bat Books for Beginners on the website and on iTunes, so you can listen to all the previous episodes and catch up on the entire Batman universe, uh, which we have not necessarily edited for the New 52. We're continuing on with our own continuity mashup that we've created. Take that, DC. Nonetheless. Yeah, nonetheless. Nonetheless, uh, as far as what we'll be covering next time on the podcast, we'll be covering Batgirl number 16, Batman and Robin number 16, Detective Comics number 16, Batman number 16. I do not believe Suicide Squad is supposed to tie into Death of the Family, so we will not be covering that next episode. Uh, so only four books for the next episode. So we could possibly um, have a throwback to DC Universe Spotlight since it's been a while, and we might uh, re- refer some books for you guys to check out on the next episode because we might actually have time. So with that being said, that is everything for this episode. I want to remind everybody to head over to the website for all the daily news related to not only the comics but movies, merchandise, video game, TV shows, and general. Um, you can also check out uh, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to follow the Batman Universe to find all of the latest updates and videos from the Batman Universe. You can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. You can leave your comments about this episode or any other podcast episode up on the actual pod, the, the actual page post on the website for the podcast. You can leave us reviews on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. And be sure to check out all of our other podcasts that we have to offer. We've posted a number of different specials over the past few weeks, including a blooper show, an anniversary special, our, uh, both of the, or I should say two of our original graphic novel specials are up, Batman Earth 1 and Batman Noel are up, and uh, Death by Design will be uh, coming up um, in the future as well as some other books that we will be, that haven't necessarily aren't recent, but we will be also covering as well um, with the OGN special. Uh, check out the Batman Universe commentaries. Check out all of the podcasts. There's tons of them. Also check out the Batman Universe Bat fans for the fanboy perspective on the Batman Universe, as well as Batgirl to Oracle. So, that's everything. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Jay. And this is Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Dustin, yep. are you there? Oh, okay. Have you seen your comment section all a tizzy? Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> you and Donna are clearly getting married.
<laughs> the ordained minister, yeah, apparently. I, I have to wear a dog collar and a bat cowl, I guess. Fix now. Someone needs a Photoshop. Absolutely. I blame John Rogue. Which is actually the incorrect word for mother in Greek. It's actually mater. But never mind. No one cares, do they? No! <laughs> um, it's, it's mu, ada, tau, ada, rho, alpha. Just so you know. Of, uh, around a circle. What are those called? A... Normally I know it right off the bat. Whatever. Uh, a, a ring. Composition. Thank you. Okay. Compare like Gail Simone or Judd Winnick's story arcs. Well, Scott Snyder came from a, a traditional writing background, didn't he? Not novelist. Yeah. He was a short story. Oh. He wrote a book about short stories. Okay. Apologies. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Oh, and I also, I also thought of something else on my own that, uh, just as like it's crossing over with Aquaman. That's, that's, uh, something that's been going on. On your own, you thought of that? <laughs> I was the one who thought of that and typed in the chat went on. You know, <laughs> I'm going to call you out on that. People don't think females are knowledgeable in comics. I know what's going on. Um, that's because you guys spend so much time reading 50 Shades. Hey, I will not touch that trash. <laughs> I will not touch that. Mark my words. Mark them well. Would you hire Gail Simone? Anyway, would I hire her? Is that what you said? <laughs> would I hire her? I would give her a chance, but I would also give her a chance on books that she would probably be a much better fan Hire Stella on Batgirl. <laughs> that would be I don't know if fanfic. Stella can write, so... No, in general, I mean, Gail Simone is a good writer. I just think the thing is, she's more passionate about other things, and this is not something she's as passionate about. She's passionate about the character, but I don't think she's passionate about telling stories about the character, and I think that's why... She's in the situation that she's in. But this isn't a Batgirl <laughs> review or a Batgirl podcast. For that, tune in to Batgirl. It's an Oracle, oh. hosted by Stella. Thank you, sir. Is her name Sonya Brand? <laughs> or Sonya Zucar? Is it real? Okay. She changed her name. She changed her name so that she didn't have to get okay. the looks. It sounded like uh, a Mortal Kombat character. Sonya Blade. But, uh... Well, look, look, at how, look at how she's dressed. She clearly wants the <laughs> Grayson. Oh my gosh! <laughs> okay, we're cutting that. You are. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, really? Sorry. Yeah. Are you okay? No, I'm not. Oh. It hurts. <laughs> but that's what I have. Nobody wants to talk about back cow. Oh, well, the fact that he said he wouldn't be in it anymore, <laughs> and then he was. I was happy yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of funny. Especially that panel, just moo, and that was it. It made absolutely no, it, like, the placement of that just made absolutely no <laughs> sense. It, 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 like, I'm just sitting here thinking, what is the likelihood of a cow being inside of the back cave? Well, it's been there for a while. Too. No, no, I know that. I'm just saying, like, to, like... Don't get me wrong, I liked that entire sequence. I thought the sequence was kind of cool, how Alfred brings the cat that we saw in the last issue, and he actually names it Alfred like we saw in the last issue, although I'm pretty sure that cat is not going to live that long. It has to. It's not a, uh. Because <laughs> we saw him in the future. And it's the kid. Well, then I guess he gets a replacement. I cat. doubt it. I, 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 I feel like we're, we're starting to build up now into that future that we've seen in Batman 666. 
And so little by little, the pieces are going to start falling into place. And right now we had this little piece fall into place. Yes, but there's but cats only live like a max of like... Well, it's going to be a metahuman cat. I thought that Damien yeah, was going to so. ex- age accelerate it and like that time, the future is not all that far from whenever now is. And that, that might be possible. And that is could explain it. I don't like talking about the testiness <laughs> of Damien because then you yeah, start... Forgot. It raises way too many questions. That cow's breaking the fourth wall in every panel. If you go through the book, he's always looking at you. Oh, gosh! Deadpool. Deadpool of DC Universe. Huh? Did you just cry? I was impersonating Jimmy the Clown. Oh, that was Tony's cell phone. <laughs> She's dying. <laughs> oh, man. Lady. Oh. oh, what a night. That was fun. That was long as hell. That was fun. Have a nice day.